theyeshiva.net. So welcome all. Tonight, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and I will be discussing various taboos within the Jewish community. By a taboo, we mean taboo to speak about, not taboo to do. It's taboo to speak about these things. They're happening. But for whatever reason, there's a taboo on speaking about it. Uh, tonight is the first of a three-part series. Uh, the second will be exactly two weeks from now on a Wednesday. The Everyone who registered to this event uh, will receive um, an email with information on that as well. If you're watching this in um, some other format, then follow Rabbi YY or myself where we are followed, either on WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is, and we'll definitely be sharing information on um, on the event itself. Tonight, after this short introduction, we'll focus on um, mostly the sexual taboos for this evening. So some of what we spoke about, sexual abuse, sexual addictions, infidelity, sexual identity issues, homosexuality, so the general uh, sexual taboos that exist. On future discussions, we'll talk about things, it's a conversation that um, has been coming up for whatever reason in my life over the last few months, parental abuse and other religious abuse, and how someone is meant to deal with um, all of those things, right? There's trauma, but when there's trauma from a parent or a loved one or trauma from a, within the context of religion or from a religious figure, that adds a certain uh, dimension, and oftentimes it's taboo in a certain way to talk about. And we'll also address some of the plants, psychedelic healing, plant medicines, uh, the format will be Rabbi Waiwai and I discussing these topics between the two of us, followed by a period for question and answer. There's a question and answer section within the Zoom itself. Do not use the chat to put questions. We won't necessarily see that, but within the question and answer, use those. There's an upvote function. So if we know questions are more relevant uh, to a group of people, we're more likely to uh, to answer that questions. I have uh, Tyler here on the side of me, outside of the video, and as he sees later towards the end of this, as we see... Um, he'll bring up some of the questions. All right, Rabbi Waiwai, welcome. Welcome, Ali, and thank you for bringing us together, and thank you, everybody, for mm-hmm. joining us and gracing us with your presence. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for agreeing to uh, do this with us. I don't know that there's uh, two of you that exist. There certainly isn't two of you, but I don't know that there's two that would, there are two rabbis that would agree to a conversation uh, of this nature. So I'm grateful for, uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for more. Find it a privilege, really a humbling privilege, to be able to address this with you and with so many of our friends who are joining us. So why is that? Why do you feel that this is important, tackling taboos? Because tackling taboos, there could be reasons they're taboos. It's not without risk. It's not without personal risk. It's not without risk to um, others who we may be uh, sharing some of these topics with. So why is this important and why now? The reason is because the Torah, the first thing the Torah says is not good. You would think the first thing the Torah, Judaism identifies as not good, should be sin, maybe idolatry, maybe another transgression against God. But the first thing that the Torah says is not good and beracious, the beginning of Genesis, is lo tov heyoisa adam levadai. It's not good for Adam, for a human being, to be alone. We weren't designed to live in loneliness. And what I have seen in my own life and the lives of many people who I have a privilege to be in contact with on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis is there is so much suffering and agony that is happening in solitariness and loneliness. 
It's hard enough for people to be dealing with the burdens of addictions, of porn addiction, of homosexuality, of infidelity, of, 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 of trauma, of brokenness on all levels. Compound that with the loneliness. In fact, there are many, but there are healers who define trauma. Really what trauma is, it's not the event that happened or the events that happened, even if they happened for many years. It's rather the loneliness that was created as a result of that. And therefore, many maintain, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, that the primary healing happens in the antithesis of loneliness. And the connection of trust and empathy. The very fact that we can sit together and we both feel that we don't judge each other. And we don't. (laughs) Hmm. And other people can feel that this is this is gu'ula energy. This is redemptive energy. This is divine energy. That's what it is, and that's where all heal. So, that's where much of healing comes from. Right. We're we're also we're hurt through people. Right. Is there could be physical trauma, but that trauma doesn't usually attach it attach as much to us if it's not through a person. Right. There was a, a, a an enemy on the other end, a monster on the other end. There's, we're hurt through people, and we have to heal through people. I remember the first twelve step meeting I went to. There was a, a sign on the wall. There were many signs on the wall, but there was one sign on the wall that I remember. It said, you are not alone. And that was a message that's uh, profoundly important, and hopefully we can convey that to the many people who are suffering from the various struggles we'll talk about this evening, that they are not alone. And in the Orthodox community, you know, this problem becomes much more magnified because shame. You know, there's, a, there's there are religious expectations, there's what a Ben Torah is supposed to look like. What a what a from religious, ultra orthodox Jew or even regular orthodox Jew is supposed to look like. Feelings that I'm supposed to have that I'm not supposed to have. Character traits I'm supposed to have. Struggles that are fine, but struggles that are. <laughs> now right, we in this community, and I maybe even have children that I want to marry off and send into our institutions, or even if I'm not married, but I want, I want to get married, the stigma and the shame is overwhelming. So not only am I dealing with whatever I'm dealing with, much of my mental space, I can't even be dealing with it, because I'm dealing with avoiding the publicity, the conversation, dealing with the guilt and the shame. So I'm not even dealing with what i got to deal with. That's, that's, right, that's this idea, sad. This idea... This idea, can we challenge this idea that it's taken for granted that we do things for a shidduch? Meaning that we have to keep certain things. Because what are we saying? We're saying my family has been phenomenally supportive. My family, I don't even my wife, also my, my parents and siblings have been very supportive of me um, speaking. I probably would speak anyway, <laughs> even if they weren't. Not to discount them, but because I know how important it is. Because I know... I, I know the struggle. I know how every real it is to suffer mother, in silence. Every time I meet your mother, Ali, <laughs> she talks about you with a glowing countenance. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. She's one of my biggest fans for sure. The, so, uh, but I do believe that the very first thing I did probably was I filmed joining the, us, so I'm going to give an She probably is. No? To Mrs. Nash. <laughs> she probably is. Mrs. Probably Nash. Is. And she's... <laughs> And I will say she is the one who helped me um, confront my abuser when I eventually did, the person who sexually abused me. She helped. I gave up. I had tried for four years, and I gave up. I thought, okay, I'm not going to get the support I need to make it happen. And uh, my mother brought out uh, her Moroccan side and made sure that 
that uh, her son got the uh, the healing, the, the reconciliation that was needed. The lioness, <laughs> the lioness went after the prey. <laughs> so it's supposed we, to got, be. <laughs> we got we got what was needed, but I do feel, and even if it wasn't conveyed, even if it wasn't conveyed to me verbally, that the ver- the very first time I put my story out publicly was a. A documentary put on YouTube called Seven Orthodox Survivors of Abuse Speak Out. And at the time, I didn't know of any other person who was sexually abused who came out publicly. I remember having the conversation then with Mayor Sewald, who, had, who was running Jewish Community Watch, and I said, you understand the problem here, why everyone hates, uh, <laughs> hates you, is the victims are, are faceless, and the abusers are giving a face. So who's going to choose, a black box or a face? Let's put our faces out there. He said, no one's going to do it. I said, I'll do it. Will you do it? He said, if you do it, I'll do it. I said, okay, let's find others. And we found seven people um, who agreed to uh, come out, and we shared that. After I filmed it, it was in Brooklyn. I was visiting Crown Heights. After I filmed it in Brooklyn, I came home to my parents, and I said that, or, or my mother was home, and I said, I'm just letting you know what I did. I just filmed this. She, there was definitely a reluctance. Like, it wasn't easy to accept. Like, she got there. There was definitely some and I felt like some of that was around this shidduch idea. Like you have yourself and others at the time I was single, but others who were who are not married. Like what are you putting out there? And what's the chance that it affects them? So my question is like this. If, we're, if this is like a given that we hide certain things in order for shidduchim to happen, aren't we going into marriages with a lie? Isn't that what we're saying? In order for two human beings to come together, we have to lie to each other? You're touching on something that's very, very sensitive and very genuine. And I'll tell you something, you know, to be very honest. What I'm seeing today, and I'm not saying this in a scientific way, I'm saying this from anecdotal data, but with hundreds and hundreds of people, that most divorces that are happening today, and there are many divorces, are not because the husband and the wife are not compatible. That's very rare. Most divorces are happening because... One of them or both of them are living in active trauma. And they're either unaware of it or they're not ready to identify it. Which means everything that we're hiding is going to emerge in the midst of the relationship in a very, very powerful way. So I say to my students constantly, and they know I'm half joking, but I'm half not joking. I say, this is what I think the first date should look like. Okay, Get into the car, (laughs) hold the door open. As she comes in, sit down, smile and say, hi, this is my trauma. Now let me hear about your trauma. Now, I don't mind if you talk about Israel and about Lafa and about ice cream and about seminary and where you went to camp, where you're going to camp, your family, you like spaghetti, you don't like spaghetti. All good, and you should talk about it. But what's really going to make or break the marriage is the readiness of husbands and wives to be able to identify our most scary places, my skeletons, my ghosts, my deepest fears, my broken places. And those are hard even for me to identify. I don't even know about them. You know, trauma with capital T is often erased from the conscious memory. So I'm triggered right. and I'm angry and I'm lonely and I'm running away, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. But I don't even know. I don't even know what's happening. It happened since age four, since age two, since age one, maybe a preverbal memory. So not only do we have to be sensitive to this, I believe this is going to be at the forefront of what's going to define the relationship. Either you will have an amazing marriage because you'll be able to trust each other in those vulnerable places where instead of you pouncing at me, you'll actually be able to become an empathetic witness for me and me for my partner. Or we will kill each other and not even because we're bad people. 
<laughs> we're just four-year-olds literally trying to survive. And, and it's so sad. It's so sad because you have good people. And, and they're trying. And they're going to also good people for advice. But right. I feel that today people who are not educated on this level of self, which we have so much information about, can't give advice, not as teachers and not as parents and not as mentors. We, we have to understand the inner world of, of brokenness. And it's a world, it's a universe we have to be very humble about. And, you know, I, I, I learn this every day. I learn more and more and more. And I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by the, by the, by the knowledge I ha- that I, I get to learn every day from people and from books and from scholars and from experts that I knew nothing about just a f- And from experience. An experience, of course. I'm saying the personal, like for myself, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't get a degree on in anything. But I hear a therapist. I was listening to this guy Benjamin Tepfer on a podcast called Mislabeled, where he talks about porn and sex addiction and everything else. And as he's talking, I, they asked him a question. I, his answer jived with mine. And the way he was speaking, meaning before he answered, I almost knew what he was going to say. Why? Because that was my experience. He was talking my experience. The textbooks were describing an experience that was had as an individual. So I think this is this learning is available to everyone. Every rabbi, every mentor, every teacher, everyone who exists in this world now has a significant amount of their own personal trauma that they have an opportunity to work through and in the process understand another human being that much better. We don't need to... It's a gift. Uh, Oprah just released a book with a doctor, I forgot his name, uh, great, great neuroscientist and, and therapist. It's called what, what Happened to You? What happened? What to happened you? to you? And and there's a line there. The doctor says it, it touched me so deeply. My wife actually showed it to me. He said, "Stop looking at a child, and stop saying what's wrong with you. Instead, look at the child and say, what happened to you." And I say that with adults. Don't look at him or and say, "What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're such a right. sugarna. Uh, you're such a disappointment to God. You're 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 such a bad person." <laughs> we, we, we missed the boat. Can I hold your hand? Can somebody hold my hand? And say, come, let's explore together. What happened to you? And you know what we discover? We discover then how much goodness there is in people. And we discover how our most evil, selfish, horrible parts are really a desperate attempt for survival at an age when I knew not better. You almost have to be thankful. There's a, you know, there's a mission in Brachas Love God with your positive, good inclination and negative inclination. Yetzir Toiv, There's all this discussion, especially in Hasidic works, that the Yetzir one day is going to be transformed. And when I grew up, I always understood it, you know, some, some miracle, the evil will be metamorphosized. Today, we have the gift of understanding exactly what it is. Most of my evil traits, and if I may say your evil traits, I don't think you have evil traits, but most of our traits that make us so despicable, if we go deep, deep, deep down, you know what we're going to discover? This is a most delicious, innocent, angelic two-year-old or six-year-old who desperately created this persona simply trying to live in a very challenging world or challenging home. Wow. I would add, I would add to that that oftentimes there were brilliant solutions to very complex problems. Exactly. Yeah, for, the, right. for, for that, that moment. moment. Exactly. What the brain, we see the, 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 the divine miracle of a brain, what a brain does. I know somebody recently, somebody very close, 
who did not have any memory of this, his father, I almost cried when he told me this story, his father and somebody else in his family raped him for years. And he didn't know any of this. He did not know any of this. Imagine he grew up with a complete mythical understanding about his father and his family. He knew that he's weird, but his, his conscious brain erased, literally erased all of it. And he decided that he's a crazy and weird person and that's why he has social anxiety and that's why he's suffering from homosexuality and that's why he has a miserable marriage. He's just, and he was diagnosed as a narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, Asperger's. (laughs) I'm laughing. It's really a sad story. And I was speaking to him the other day. He found out through psychedelics. And, and a lot, a lot of therapy and a lot of integration work. It wasn't just a trip. It was a lot of inner work. But mm-hmm. together with the plants, together with psychedelics, he found out what happened to him. And, uh, and he told me the other day, he says, Rabbi, why, why I wanted to, you know, I want to, I want you to understand something. My brain so desperately wanted to hold on to a father who was a good father that it made me believe that I am simply a crazy, weird person. So that I should be able to live with an image of a father who's a protector. So understand, it, it was so important for the brain to say, I have a father. I have a father. Too painful to say, my own father is ready to put a dagger in my chest. So yeah. the brain came up with a whole different narrative and therefore it created a whole different... And now you look at this person to say to him, what's wrong with you? I want to hold his hand and say, share with me what happened. Share with yourself what happened. And you know what? We unburden, we unburden all those evil parts that were never evil. They just came across that way. Right. You used the word that he desperately wanted to believe that his father was a protector. But maybe it's more appropriate to say he desperately needed to. Like he needed that to survive his childhood. Yeah. And that's the brilliance. The brilliance that the mind can create the whole mythical reality to survive childhood and then later in life, he wants to know why he lives in a fantasy world. Because he needed to. He needed to. He needed to. A fellow I know. All day he's looking for validation. All day. He will do anything to get a compliment, to get validation. It means the world to him. And criticism is a death sentence. And we were talking the other day. And knowing a little bit of a story that he shared with me, I said, you know, instead of feeling guilty, this is what I want you to do. I want you to express gratitude to the part of you that needs validation because that is the only way you are living today intact. You would have been suicidal. You would have died from an overdose. The amount of abuse that this man experienced, which I know, I know unfortunately, was so profound, he had no love in his life. Whoever he went to love was not available. Okay, when you're four years old, you can't tell yourself, I don't need the world, I'm a man, I'm a lion, I'm independent, God loves me, I don't need you. You can't do that when you're four. When you're four, you need somebody to say, I love you, I'm here for you, I'm going to hold your hand. So yes, you substituted love for the craving for validation. Could you thank it? Could you look at it and say, wow, thank you for helping me survive. And now you can choose to actually discover a self that actually wants real love rather than fake validation. So we have to actually be thankful, thankful to all of these horrible parts, which became horrible, but really, as you said, were brilliant, brilliant mechanisms 
that allowed us to hold life together. And that's why we're here today to tell the story and to begin the healing process. Correct. You know, I, um, anyone who's struggling with, with porn addiction that reaches out to me for help, at some point I'll advise them to write a thank you letter to pornography. You said that in our last session I, also. I, in the last conversation. Yeah, it's, and it's very important, and I think it's more than... To, to, the, to the... To pornography, to the addiction. Wow. Because quite literally, it's... I mean, for myself, it was a survival strategy. I mean, we do have to be... You know, there was an email you forwarded me earlier today where someone said, like, let's address solutions this time. Last time we spoke, there was a lot of sympathy offered, a lot of compassion. And he said, let's address solutions. So first of all, I just want to say to whoever submitted that, that you can't address solutions until you address the sympathy. That is what's needed first, is to come into a room of safety, because before there's safety, there is no healing. So that is always step one, is to create a space where someone can feel safe to let their guard down and allow the healing to take place. And then from there, we can offer, we can offer uh, solutions and understanding. So it is 100% the appropriate way. We can't just go straight into solutions. We can know the perfect solution for someone. What's that saying? No one, know, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to speak for you, and it, it's your own experience, but I just want to summarize wh- what I'm hearing you say about your life, and I think what you shared part in our, we had a, Ellie and mm-hmm. I had a seminar, a, few, a webinar a few months ago about, about porn addiction, that really today, when you abstain from this addiction, it's, it's because you can recognize, you can recognize how it was simply a survival method and skill that was desperately necessary when you were a child and today thank god you don't need that survival that's not needed correct you know when i I read a bunch of books on addiction and you know explaining it and sometimes for someone else to put your experience in words is so healing and i read this book i remember the author's name was lance dodes but i don't remember the name of uh, the book something about breaking addiction and he said Someone acting out an addiction is the equivalent of someone who has their a limb trapped under a rock and they're cutting that limb off. So if you're too focused, and when I read this, I said, perfect, like that, it landed, it resonated. Because you look at this behavior and you say, what are you doing? Like, how can you cut your limb off? How can you be destroying yourself in that way? And it does, it does. No one's, I mean, I'm not saying no one's watching pornography for pleasure. No one was watching the amount of pornography I was for pleasure, I assure you that. No one was dependent on it in order to receive the pleasure that it was offering, just the pleasure, because at this point it was demoralization, it was shameful, there was so much about it that I didn't want, but I couldn't stop until I looked under the hood at, uh, at what it was offering me. So you look at this behavior and you say, why are you cutting off your limb? Zoom out and see, it's just trapped under a rock. So what should a person do? And that's what I think for many, many people, it is pure survival. And then understanding the genius of that. Like the brilliance, what was my brilliance as a kid? That I was able to completely escape the discomfort I was in through a variety of different ways. Sometimes I needed pornography, sometimes I didn't. But to be able to just, you know, zone out, to, to detach, right? I dissociated, I, I disappeared from the room. I looked like I was there, but I, I wasn't there. When it was more intense, I needed pornography. But when it wasn't, I was able to, to disappear in, uh, in other ways. And now sometimes I have to remind myself, no, check in, it's safe. Like, it's okay. We don't have to, the, that reaction will still, will still show up sometimes where it's like, hey, you can, you can disappear in a moment. You can disappear in a moment's notice. You know, and, uh, if, if I'm living for 40, 50 years or even for 10 years and 15 years with certain neural pathways, this is my survival. You have to, 
be compassionate with the fact that these skills will be triggered 30 years down the line. This was the first 20, 30, 40 years of my life. I can't expect and it. Just and it was a great one. And it was an amazing one. You're like the fantasy world that this guy created who you described. Like what a gift he had to be able to live in a whole mythical reality. He was just there in La La Land. Now it's hurting him. Okay, great. But it wasn't always hurting him. And this is, I mean, the, the, the reason I brought it up last time. It was hurting him, but the alternative was death. Correct. The alternative was death. At that point, and that's the, right, and now the job for us today is to create a safe enough space for him to say, like, you're okay. If you, if you look at reality today, it's not going to be as dangerous as it was for a four-year-old. It may be as scary. It may, it may not be as dangerous. to respond in the same way that you have for 40 years or 20 years or 15 years when a similar threat emerges, you could do it differently. You could, right. you could also tell your parts that you're not four years old. You're 17 years old. You're 20 years Correct. old. You're 51 years old. Right. We're in a different reality today and we can respond differently. But, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about, it's no mistake, um, I, rece- I, was, I was speaking to someone earlier today who was... Um, 60 years old, married for many years, recently um, had a mushroom psychedelic journey and recognized all the things he was doing in his life, including cheating on his wife. So this guy was over the moon. I'm perfect. I'm healed. I'm everything else. One of the things he said, can you please speak to my wife so she realizes that I'm different? <laughs> right? I, I said, listen, I said, it's wonderful that you had this experience. But she, she had the experience of you for 25 years. Like for her just to let that go... Um, isn't as easy as it was for you. He's like, I vomited all out. I'm a different person. I said, first of all, we don't know that because your experience was a week ago. You're still on it. So it's going to take more than that. But more, more, even if you are, even if you really vomited it all out and it's done and you're not that person anymore, we still have to recognize the pain and suffering that another human being experienced with this person for 20, 25 years. And I just want to be sensitive to that is that while we're being very accepting and loving towards the person who's causing pain and who's doing all these things, we also have to recognize that while they're fumbling around in the dark, um, they're hurting someone else. And again, that was my, uh, I, I speak a lot mostly from experience. And how did I come about to recognize that porn was a problem in my life? Because when I started dating my wife was the first time I really tried to to stop. Previously, I had said I'm going to stop, and I did different things, but this was a real concerted effort to stop, and I saw how powerful the uh, the urge was. The first fight with my wife, two months into the relationship, the first disagreement, I right away was running there. And now when I went there, now I felt the shame. Did I cheat on her? Did I this? Did I that? And the shame grew and grew and grew so much to the point that I ended up cheating on her with a, an actual, with, with, with a person, that infidelity. And I saw how crushed she was from it. So eventually, yes, it's fantastic. I, I get onto a healing path and I recognize my, um, my challenges, but her pain is, now this is her pain, right? I've passed something else on to her that is, uh, that's her pain and very real for, for her, to, her to deal with. And just because I've made a few changes doesn't mean she's on board and, she, you know, oh, don't worry, I said I'm sorry. You know, come uh, come along for the ride. I'm here. So it's so important because very often, you know, addicts who are working on themselves need to know how important it is for them to give validation to their spouses for everything they put them through 
even if they were not malicious, they were just traumatized. That's true. <laughs> but if I amputate your arm, even by mistake, I have to be able <laughs> right. to validate the blood and the, desp- and, and the horrible agony that many of these spouses have been through for all these years. And I would say that is also a sign of healing because part of my trauma is that I can't feel your pain. I'm just trying to Correct. survive. And if I'm really healing, if I'm really opening myself up to emotions, my own emotions, part of that is opening myself up to your emotions, and that's going to be painful. I don't want to feel that because there's going to be a part of me that says, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. Let, 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 let's just get out of it. And that is part of my trauma. So you have to realize if you are resistant to really listening to your spouse and tuning into their pain, that is probably resistance that is coming from a wound that I'm not ready to let go of. I want to pause what you said, something very powerful. You got married, and in your first argument... I wasn't married. I was that we're, we're dating. And it's actually important to my wife. I, I once shared on a podcast, and she said it's important for her that when I share this, and she understands that I share certain things publicly, and I'm not, I'm not a public person. That's not my personality. I do this because I see the struggling. I see the suffering. So you can't have a conversation with everyone. You don't know who it's going to reach. And the people who need it the most are not the people who are reaching out. They're you know, watching this months later. So it's important to my wife that, I, uh, that I'm clear that this happened before we were married. She asked me that. So Thank you. So, <laughs> so just to pause that moment. So you get into an argument and you said you, you ran to porn. Immediately ran to porn, yeah. C- could you describe to us the emotional science of that, what it felt like? <laughs> you're, you're arguing with your, with your bride, with your girlfriend, and what's happening? So what had happened was is... Um, we had gone on vacation together. It was our first, like, a real long vacation. And when we came back, she expressed some displeasure. I was, it was my first real relationship, and I didn't know. I was like, okay, I'm going to drag her along for my experiences. Right? This is what I want to introduce her to my friends. I was so excited, you know? And in this period of time, what's interesting is that I was in a little bubble where I wasn't watching pornography. There was only twice in my life I started watching it started before pornography, catalogs that showed up that showed up in my home and then eventually led to pornography. But when I became obsessed with um, pictures of mostly naked women, I was 12 years old, 13 years old. And then it continued and progressed, you know, from catalogs eventually to uh, pornography and eventually to, um, to uh, real people. There were two times in my life that I felt like I was free from it before recovery. One was uh, when I joined... Um, a community of um, an exercise community called CrossFit, some are familiar with. So when it started coming on the scene early on, I joined and I was completely immersed in this. I was like, wow, what an amazing thing. But the communal aspects, the exercise aspects. And for two or three months when I first joined, I noticed that I wasn't watching pornography. If I was, it was very, very infrequent. And I was at someone who used, was regular. It was pretty much daily, morning and evening. Like that, you know, so to go several months was, you know, that was pretty impressive. The second time was right after I met my wife. And in that period of, da- of dating at first, I didn't feel the need until that experience. When we came back from vacation and it was a long distance relationship, she was living in California, I was living in Miami. And afterwards, she shared some disappointment about different things I did on the trip. And I was so hurt by it, it turned into an argument. And then from there, it was just downhill. I didn't know how, I didn't have the tools to deal with uh, the disappointment and suddenly this I guess little rosy... I guess you felt so, so much inadequacy, right? You felt like a, like a loser? Like what a that feeling was? Uh, yeah, I felt like I disappointed her. I felt like I let it down. I felt like uh, 
I'm not a real man. I felt like, you know, I'm, I, I can't do this. What I'm trying to do, I was trying so hard to do something and I can't do it. And this meant much more of I didn't do this is I can't do anything right. And it felt, you know, we make it uh, much bigger. I often tell people. Comfort zone. You went back to your comfort zone. Instinctively. Yeah. I went to pornography and then I said, okay, it's not, what's wrong? It's a picture. It's a video. It's, it's not cheating uh, on her. But then that secret sits there. And is it? Is it not? I don't know. I didn't really discuss it with her. So now I'm lying to her. So if I wasn't cheating with her before, now I'm lying to her about something. And it just kind of grew on, uh, on that. Often married, but I will... people, married people often ask me you know, how they can avoid pornography. It's so not good for the marriage. And they're looking for zgula, you know, for different amulets and spiritual tricks. And I say, listen, maybe these are all good things, but let me tell you the, the best method. If you can create an amazing marriage, you're looking forward to come home at night. She's looking forward to come home at night. You, you, you're not fighting the pornography. You have an amazing relationship. You could talk about your brokenness. You could talk about your disappointments. You could, you could listen to each other and not run away from each other. You know, uh, uh, I once heard from a marriage therapist. We did a workshop together here, Muncie. He said something so powerful. He said, this is how a conversation between a husband and a wife should take place. When there are a lot of issues, not the one there's no issues and who doesn't have issues. He said, instead of, you know, the, 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 the wife comes to the husband and says, you know, I really want to talk to you about, I need to talk to you now for an hour about personal stuff when I'm feeling, you know, and he's busy with work and, and he, <laughs> he's trying to get his validation. He's trying to make money. He's trying to be productive. He, he's being successful and, and she wants this conversation. So, so the therapist was saying, you know, if you could tell, if, if the husband can talk to the wife and tell his wife, I want to know, I want to tell you something. There's a part of me, there's a part of me that doesn't want to have this conversation with you. It's a part of me that wants to go straight back to my computer, straight back to my books, or straight back to my phone, or straight back to my Netflix, whatever it is, or my books, or my gym. There's a part of me that doesn't want this conversation with you. It's scared. It wants to be isolated. It doesn't believe in emotional transparency. But but I want a relationship with you, and and the woman the woman could could say you know wow and there's a part of me that right now wants to run away from you <laughs> and say I'm done you know let me call my sister <laughs> let me call my therapist let me go do my yoga I'm done with you there's a part of me but I want this relationship. The challenge is when the parts start talking to each other. What what Hasidus calls the klipois talk to each other. My shells are talking to your shells rather than my I, my, my liberated, expansive self is talking to yourself. When we can do this for each other, I don't need the pornography. So, so the marriage therapist's recommendation was to take the experience that the person was having of not wanting to be there, separate it from themselves and say, this is not me, this is a part of me that wants to do that. It's a part but of But I'm here. It's an important part of me. It's, it allowed me to survive for 39 years. <laughs> it's a big part of me. It comes up every day. But you know what? I want a relationship. I know I want to be a relationship. I want a relationship. I don't want to live in active trauma. I don't want to have to freeze every time you confront me. I don't want to have to get into fight or flight. I want to be in a relationship. But but there's a part of me that says, absolutely no, you don't want to be in a relationship. And you know what? If you need your wife, if you feel that you need your wife, you know what that's going to bring up? It's going to bring up the fact that one day you needed a mother. You needed a mother. You needed a father. You didn't have them. You know how painful that was? 
When you were four years old, you told yourself, I don't need a mother. I don't need a father. Because you didn't have one. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. You know what? I don't even need emotions. Emotions are a stupid burden. I'm going to become an Einstein. I'm going to become a genius. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to become a Talmud Chacham. Whatever it is, I'm going to be respected in yeshiva. And I'll do well. I don't need a mother. I'm not a baby. I'm not a baby. If you need a wife, that's coming up. I need a wife? I need somebody to hold me? I don't want to go there. So I say, I don't need anybody. But that, those are very real parts that made me or us survive. And now, yep. if we can have the courage to be able to identify them and say, wow, but you know what? I need a mother. I need a father. I need a wife. I need a husband. It's very that therapist. It's very vulnerable. It's vulnerable. It's scary. Huge. And and we need to be, we need to you know we need to work together in this because you know if if I share this with you and you tell <laughs> me what a sick man I am, I go right back into isolation. Right. There is a vulnerability and there is an exposure that happens. There's a therapist. To be so much so much humility, so much goodwill, and the most important word is compassion, empathy, 100%. compassion for ourselves. And, and, and compassion for the other. I, I know a fellow, he sent me a whole email. I mean, but these are common stories. I've heard this from so many people. He has been sexually molested for many, many years. And he says the pain was so profound, he, he didn't know about this. <laughs> he didn't know about this for decades. The pain was so profound, disassociation. His words, my soul left my body. Because if my soul would be in my body, it would be too much. So my body became a shell of itself. And now you could do with my body whatever you want. You can molest it. You can rape it every night. Because I was not there. He said, and you know what? I never came back. I never came back. So I processed the world, not through embodiment, but through a brain. And he told me, he says, I am artificial intelligence. I am artificial intelligence has a great job in a company. He's a brilliant programmer. He's a brilliant guy. I am artificial intelligence. He says, I, I have no emotions. There is the dissociative state is very, is very common. When I was... It's very profound. Now you're in a marriage. You're in a relationship, right? Infidelity. You can have sexuality. You can have fake love without emotions. <laughs> Respect. That's... That's the state I was referring to earlier, that ability to be able to, to leave your body in some, some format. That's the, it's brilliant. The strategy, is, yeah, the strategy I, is brilliant. Yeah. I go to porn. I go to a club. I'm cheating on my wife, right? It could be uh, sexting, what do they call it, uh, on WhatsApp, on, on my phone, or physical, uh, virtual, whatever it is. This is a way of connecting without really connecting, <laughs> I don't have to share with, with the prostitute or with my fake partner or with the porn scenes, my emotions. It's all on my terms. I'm living in a vicarious relationship that is completely inauthentic and my survival skill is protected. And I could look at myself and say, I'm a piece of garbage. I am the greatest disappointment to Judaism. And, and I think what we're trying to share tonight is the truth. And that is, yes... You want to be able to stop, but the only way you're going to stop is if you're going to have empathy. Empathy and compassion for what happened here. Because you're actually not an evil person. 
You're actually a very, very good person. And when you could recognize the need, you'll be able to really be able to forgive what happened and actually really move on in a very integrated way. And this t- it takes so much compassion. But we, yeah, we need always to... have to validate, as you said, the Correct. suffering. Be a person, the person who's pain. It's very, you very know? important. Um, in fact, we got a few emails after last session. Some wife said, you know, it's so nice. So you give empathy to my husband, <laughs> addict, right? <laughs> what about 25 years of my life that was destroyed? I was living with an addict. This is so important. Very, it's, it's extremely important. And I'm going to give a very big round of applause from my heart to all the spouses who have stuck through very, very difficult relationships. And uh, you're, you're there for these people believing in their souls. And, and hopefully, you know, all of us will be coming around more and more. But these spouses are, are righteous, righteous things. I also, also want to say, on the other hand, not on the other hand, together with this is that, you know, each of us, husbands and wives, you know, even if I'm married to an addict, which may be very serious, and I deserve all the validation, it doesn't mean I don't have trauma. <laughs> uh, you know, I may also have some deep, deep stuff that I have to work through. And, and you know, just to say you're this sick person, you know, and I'm, I'm perfect, it sometimes keeps us stuck as well. Well, that is sometimes the coping behavior that others have have learned is by saying that my problems are not such big problems so they can focus on other people's problems avoid their own and sometimes you know there's the trauma bond there's a there's a reason why um there's a reason why two people connect it's not an accident who we marry and who we connect with and i think that's a it's a very disempowering statement to say that i cannot heal until my partner heals i've i don't think it's possible for one spouse in a relationship to heal without the other healing as well. The connection is so deep. It might even be that it's not possible for one person in the world to heal without the whole world healing, that everyone is. But certainly <laughs> certainly, with, it's certainly in terms of a relationship itself, it has to be the case that as now one heals, like the other... The now you sound like the Messiah. <laughs> That's what the Messiah is supposed to say. I got to heal right? the whole world. I got to heal the whole world. I'm not just going to do yeah, one did. webinar with a thousand people. <laughs> no, I did a. Um, I'll I'll tell you a story. Actually, there was a a couple who came to me, where the um, uh, the wife cheated on the husband, and the husband wanted certain things from the uh, you know, the wife. You must go to therapy. You must do X. You must do Y. You must do Z. And it was nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. You know, and I had many conversations with. The spouse that we all thought was the sickest, right? They're the one who cheated. They're the one who needs the uh, conversations. And it didn't seem to go anywhere. Okay, frustrated, like slow progress, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And then finally, you know, I got an exasperated call from the husband, like, you got to be able to get through to my wife about X, Y, and Z. And I said, listen, I tried, I'm done. I think it's time for you to do the healing. It's on you now. What do you mean it's on me, the other one who cheated? I said, listen, I can't. I, I, we, we've gone through. We make a little progress, then they go right back a little bit later. They've done four or five psychedelic journeys. They've done years of therapy. It just, it seems, it's, it just kind of seems helpless at this point. I think you yourself need to heal or figure out you know, what it is that's keeping you in this marriage. Just do something. Eventually, he agreed he's going to, um, he's, he's going to do a, a, a psychedelic journey. went did some ayahuasca. And after a couple of experiences, everything shifted. 
the whole dynamic in the relationship shifted. And within a month, everything that this spouse was asking the other spouse to do, the other spouse recognized of their own accord that these are, these are moves I had to make. And after that experience, I said, we're doing it all wrong. We're doing it all wrong. We're running after the sickest people and saying, you go heal. You go heal. Heal, 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 heal. We're normal. We're okay. And we're telling the sickest people, you go heal. And I think it's different. I think we have to go to the healthiest people because obviously we're all sick, right? We're sitting in a soup of sickness. So obviously we're all sick in different ways. And if we, if we get to a point of completely healed, by the time we walk to the door, we've picked up three illnesses, right? There's so much stuff in society. I mean, everything between social media, between whatever. Every, there's so much of it. So the people who are the healthiest... If they think that way, then they should take responsibility, as much responsibility as possible. We need to do the healing for everyone else. And as we lift ourselves, then they will as well. But to keep, keep running to the sickest people and say that they should heal is completely crazy. I sat with Gabor Mate, the famous um, trauma therapist, a little while ago. Correct. Holocaust survivor. And he shared about a tradition, it's a tribe called the Lakota tribe, and he writes about it in his new book, The Myth of Normal, that when a person gets sick, the whole tribe goes to this person to thank them because they recognize that the sickness that this person is taking on, what is it? It's a manifestation of the sickness in the environment, and they're the one who's kind of taking one for the team. This idea that we can have people in our community who are sick, but we're okay, is antithetical to everything. It's not possible. I have this question for you. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being, um, with 10 being, everything is great. I can't believe Mashiach is not running, like, here already. Everything is so perfect. And 1 being, it's an unmitigated disaster. We need Mashiach this moment. (laughs) Or else it's, where do you think we are as a society? Now, I'm not talking about the whole world. As a Jewish community, 1 to 10. 10 being everything's amazing, 1 being it's an unmitigated disaster. Where where are we? So, uh, so I don't know, uh, maybe at the risk of sounding a little bit uh, <laughs> hallucinating, I, I find that our generation has so many challenges, but also it's at the threshold of a tremendous breakthrough. So, yeah, I see all the, the toxicity and, and, and the challenges and the pain and the trauma. But I, I also deeply feel that it's all swimming up to the surface. Literally, there's a surface of history after thousands of years of, of epigenetic pain and, and Holocaust trauma and exile trauma and interpersonal relationships and, and so many unresolved issues. I almost feel like we were given the job of healing not only our own souls, but retroactively the souls of our ancestors all the way back in order to bring history to a culmination. So I find that the challenges are very dark, but they're literally commensurate with an opportunity for, for a, 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 you know, a new heaven and a new earth, a new consciousness. That's what I'm feeling. Is, right. So in other words, I don't want to put words in your mouth, an unmitigated disaster, but you have a lot of hope. A tremendous amount of hope. I feel that number zero and number 10 are very connected. Right. That's my point. Right. You know, it's it's not just a line. Well, you know why it's connected. And this is right. And this is my point. The reason it's connected is because the ones hitting number one and zero are recognizing who's who's the ones who are who are recognizing the need to heal? The people who were sexually abused, the people whose lives were devastated by addiction. But why does it need to be that way? Why do we need to wake up? That's that's why I like this the story of the tribe. Why 
as a community, if we recognize the connection that we have, we say, okay, this is going on. How many families are there that don't have a child who is sexually abused? How many families are there who don't have a child who's addicted to someone? How many families have who don't have someone who's struggling with homosexuality, sexual identity, or and many of the other um, challenges? So based on that, we all need to heal. So who does the responsibility sit with? The person who thinks they're the healthiest. That's, That's what, what I'm suggesting. And then we have also seen, you know, they call it the, family, the book The Family Crucible. Often you'll see somebody in a family who's seen as the, the schlamazel, you know, the loser. They never got it together. And really, I look at them and I say, he's the only normal one. Everybody else is camouflaging dysfunction. They kept it together. This one, he couldn't keep it together. He fell apart. So he is the carbon. He's literally the victim. He is carrying all the bruises, all the dysfunction. You could see it on his face or on her face in his life or her life. And we all point fingers. Oh, you know, you're the embarrassment to the family. You know, you're the you're the weird you're the the weird the weird uncle. You know, the crazy one with mental illness with uh, with you know your, your third marriage, whatever it is. You know, and and sometimes this person is really. <laughs> They're just holding up a mirror to all of us. That's what I'm saying, right? We often say that the addict is the most sensitive one. Yeah. And that's why in the Lakota tradition, they go to the person who got sick and say, thank you. Thank you for being the most sensitive one who's alerting us, all of us, to the fact that there's an illness here. How did we know COVID was running rampant? Because certain people got sick right? <laughs> That's how we knew. It wasn't because we got sick, but we said, okay, we're going to respond in certain ways. And I'm not condoning the overreaction. I'm just saying the early stages of COVID, we get ourselves back to that. When there was a contagion running through the community, how did we know? We knew because other people got sick and we kind of said in one form or another, thank you. Thank you for alerting us to this. And now we, we're going to learn how to protect, how to protect ourselves. And I think Dr. Tversky or others used to say, you know, addiction is not the problem. Addiction the solution. It's easy for me to say infidelity, homosexuality, transgender, uh, put in psychedelics, drugs, whatever it is. That's the problem. And then I could say, and I'm the solution. (laughs) But addiction is not the problem. Addiction was the solution for another problem. And that problem may be inside of me. Oh, that's not comfortable. And let's remember something else. Confusion is the house of healing. Who is? Confusion. Confusion is the source of healing. Where, where I know everything, there's no healing. All right. healing comes from the humility of my okay. being vulnerable and allowing myself to decompose and open myself to a deeper reality. And many of us in the religious community have a religious arrogance. I'm a scholar, I'm a Talmud Chacham, I'm a Rosh Hashiva, I'm a Rebbe, I'm a Mashpia, I'm a Machanech, I'm a Rebbe, I'm a big guy, I'm a philanthropist. I'm not confused. But the world of healing, confusion, is redemptive. Because confusion is the ability to say, I don't know. I need to learn. <laughs> I'm not going to protect myself by making believe I know everything. It, it's an ignorance that enriches you. A lot of us are very scared of that. We're very scared of that. You know? So I want to connect this to a share you once gave, which changed me. You know, there's some you learn something and some you're transformed by. There was a share you gave. Um, I wasn't there for it. I saw it online about Yaakov going through the journey where he was um, going to be going to war with Esav. So the way you set it up, I think it was something about face. You were saying face a lot of times in the shame, face, 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 in the siege. But the idea was he was on this journey to fight Esav. 
And he prepared for war, right? 400 men and 400 animals, I think, for gifts. And then eventually when he meets Esav, he falls on his neck. You say, he did neither, right? He didn't, <laughs> never war with him. He didn't give him gifts. What happened? So you said the clue is in this journey by Vasa Yaakov Levade and Yaakov went alone and he wrestled. And in that, what I understood from it is he wrestled with who? His own identity. Who am I? And he became Yisrael, right? This identity crisis that he had. And the reason it was so healing for me to hear these words is that when I grew up, the rabbis, the, even the rabbi, right? The figures that we looked up to were perfect. They were born perfect. They died perfect. Everything they did was always perfect. They were angels in human form who couldn't make a mistake. So when I heard about our forefather Yaakov from you, who had an identity crisis and had to wrestle in a real profound way in order to be prepared for this next phase of his journey, meeting his brother Esav, that was, was profound. And I wonder if others felt the same way I did, that there was a certain perfectionism that we, that we were um, kind of set up for by the way we spoke about our role models. Wow. Meaning is a problem bigger than just rabbis. That, that class that I gave, got, I received, I think, most feedback, or, or one of the classes that received the most feedback from any other class. Really? So you're not alone, Ellie. But thank you for sharing this. But I, I just want to say I feel this is a pedagogical and educational mistake we make with ourselves and our students and our children. And that is we ultimately give the message that struggle is embarrassing. Right. And, and the real guys, the greats, the greats among us don't struggle. And that's why there are taboos. Back to taboos. And it's so important to say, you know, taboos have a legitimate place in our lives. We live in a culture, and yes, we live with religious sensitivities where we don't want to expose our six-year-old girls and boys to everything that is available in the secular world. I don't need my six-year-old girl having to decide in the morning if she's a boy or she's a girl and not allowing to call her Dvairla or Chayala or Sarla because maybe she's going to decide tomorrow she's a boy. And there's certain things we don't speak about in our house. There's a way we speak. There's clean language, pure language. Because, yes, we want to educate children with a sense of holiness, purity, idealism, connectivity. But here is here is where the tragedy happens. The six-year-old who was raped by his brother, or by his babysitter, or by his grandfather, or by his uncle. Now, when he's 26, he's not allowed to talk. Because he right, grew so, up in a very pure society. So the taboos, which are serving such a productive and holy purpose for the innocent among us, become a death sentence for those who are you. struggling. And there are hundreds of thousands of struggling before marriage and after marriage. And then we give this lesson that struggle is evil. And if you would learn more or daven more or say more Tehillim or learn more Gemara or give more Tzedakah or learn more Tanya, whatever it is, every culture with its own books and and things it, it extols, you know, you learn Daf Yomi, you learn Mishnah Brura, you learn Mesil Yisharim, whatever, you learn Lekut Sikhas, and you're not going to struggle anymore. That's a lie. That's a lie. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's antithetical to, 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 to the core of Judaism. I would say the exact opposite. The real great ones among us are the ones who found the divine in the darkest of struggles. They are the ones who teach us that struggle is your vista to greatness. Struggle, so is, your trauma is what is going to turn you into 
the greatest luminary in this world. And it's a fact. You and I know the people we look up most to and we respect most to are people who when we share with them our pain, they can look us in our eyes and we know they understand it. Right? right. You and I yeah, both know that very well. And it's true with all of us. And I also want to say, you know, Gibor Mata shared that amazing story. <laughs> but if I may add, with all due respect to Dr. Mate, who's an incredible person and whom we love and cherish, and a good, a good traumatized Holocaust survivor, <laughs> the Navi Yeshaya, Yeshaya, our prophet Isaiah, when he wants to talk about Mashiach, his description is, He is, he is filled with illness, and the Gemara in Sanhedrin describes the various illnesses that Mashiach has. And the question is, like, can't God send us a healthy Messiah? Like, <laughs> do we have to deal with such a sick person? And, and this is the answer. It's, those, it's, it's an amazing idea. It's those of us who are sick that are the source of our redemption. They hold up a mirror to our truth. <laughs> the ones of us who are perfect be careful. Be careful. So how does this jive with the idea that, maybe it's not true, I don't know where I learned it, that a tzaddik is born a tzaddik? They're different. They're different from uh, the moment they're born. So I don't know how to say this diplomatically, but that is one of the most un-Jewish concepts that exist. Every person is born to struggle and with struggle. The question is how much, in what way, to what extent. You're quoting from the Tanya, but the one who taught it completely didn't understand it. What the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman, all the Tanya says is that some souls are born with certain spiritual gifts that if they struggle and develop themselves, they are capable of certain spiritual heights that are unique and unprecedented, but their struggle is even deeper. They struggle more. And one second. And when we say struggle, you know, for example, we talk about um, Yosef, right? And it seems to be that the story with Potiphar, that there was a sexual struggle in that story. David HaMelech seemed, seemed to be that. Are, are we, when we say struggle, are we talking about these, the, the base struggles that I've been describing on this conversation? You know, we're, we're this... Excellent question. I, I want to answer this question in, in the truest way. And that is all struggles from the highest to the lowest levels are all interconnected. Meaning the trauma of birth is very similar. And I say this with a lot of sensitivity to the trauma of sexual molestation to the sensitive soul. The trauma of birth is that suddenly I, who was part of infinity, is now separate and lonely. You know how traumatic that is for a sensitive soul? The trauma of sexual molestation is I who was part of a family and part of a loving unit, I am now isolated in the world, undeserving of everything, of anything. Do you know how traumatizing that is? But understand that in a very, very deep place, those two traumas are very, very deeply connected. So all of our struggles are all connected with each other. The reason that if somebody bullies me or shames me in school or I feel like a loser for 10 years, developmental trauma in my school where I understood nothing in class and I was the nice boy, but I know that I was a loser and I was getting a 61 and the principal smiled to me and said, you know, you have good midas. You know, that that basic level of trauma is basically a very, very deep sense of, of isolation and loneliness. And it's connected to what may be a very, very deep spiritual struggle. So 
we all share that struggle. The question is only how it expresses itself. Well, that's in terms of the painful experiences. What about the, the, the desires, the addictions, though that aspect, that aspect of it? Because so much of this is, if, if I was to tell, if a student today goes to the Rebbe and says, I'm struggling, I want, I, I, I can't stop thinking about watching pornography, right? Or watching movies on Netflix, you know, for, um, for the sexual scenes or things like that. If someone is struggling with that, there's the feeling that I had, the feeling that I think many students in the yeshiva system have, or even after they left, is that they're sharing a struggle that the other person doesn't have. So what I want to know is, like, from a Jewish perspective, when you say our role models, right, the highest people in society, that they struggled. Okay, I understand this idea, that they've had pain and struggle and everything else. Yaakov had some sort of struggle on the, um, with, a, with an angel that was very, very real, right? So real that he was left with a physical limp at the end of it because he didn't even win 100%. There was something that he was, a mark that he was left with as a result, as a result um, of this. But that's, is, is that the same as saying that the urges, the shameful, um, like that, that part of us, not just the pain, but the, the urges, that too is part of their experience? So I think, I don't, I, don't, I don't think there could be a black and white answer for that. I think it depends on the person. I think some of our greatest struggled with exactly the same forms of struggles that we did. And what makes them great is not that they didn't deal with it. It's exactly that they did deal with it and they confronted it and you have it in Gemara and you have it in the Tanakh and I think to just exonerate all of them from it is is a terrible mistake. But I would add even something more and that is there are those perhaps whose form of struggle may have taken on a different shape but when you would come to them, Ellie, or I would come to them and open your heart about what happened last night with you by your screen they would completely be able to empathize with our judgment. Why? Right. Because they may not have a struggle in that area, that particular expression, but, but, but the struggle is pain. Struggle is trauma. Struggle is survival. It's not, what, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. And they will be able to find in themselves, in themselves, that pristine pain that may be manifested in a very different area. Maybe manifested completely differently, but they don't have to judge you. In fact, one of the most powerful stories in the Chabad world is that somebody came to the Mittler Rebbe, who was one of the greatest spiritual masters of his day, the son of the Alter Rebbe, and he opened up to him about necrophilia. You know this? Necrophilia is necrophilia one dead person is, is having Sex sexual relations with a corpse. Imagine. Okay. I could cry when I tell the story. What, 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 if I was a Rebbe, somebody came to me, if I get such an email, somebody comes to me, what would I do? You know what he did? He stopped all his meetings with people and he fasted for three days. And they heard him. They heard him in his room crying, praying, meditating. Three days. And then he opened up the door. And he invited him back, and he spoke to him. And later he shared, and this is what he said. When somebody comes to me with a challenge, I cannot help them if I do not find the same challenge inside of me. And the reason is because if I don't find the challenge inside of me, there's no empathy, there's judgment. 
And if there's no empathy, there's no healing. Now here, a man came to me and shared this with me, and I'm telling myself, if God sent him to me, it means I can help him. I can only help him if I'm dealing with it. And I couldn't find it inside of me. So listen to his conclusion, which means it is so subconscious that I don't even know about it. I had to fast. I had to cleanse my system to figure out where is this inside of me. This is called a healer. This is called a great person. And you know what happened? He said he found it. And you want to know how he found it? (laughs) Talk about spiritual greatness. He said as follows. He said, I speak to audiences. I teach them. I inspire them. And sometimes I'm looking at my audience and they're not listening. They're dead. They tuned out. You know, they're ADHDing on me. They went into another world. And you know what I do? I continue to talk. I continue to feed off their energy even though they're not here. Well, wow. And that is how he identified within himself this quality that now he can help this person. It's crazy to say, but from an energetic perspective, there's a similarity. Exactly. We're so quick. Exactly, uh, uh, exactly. Right. So, yeah. Okay, that's what you're saying. So, so some struggled with exactly what we're struggling with, whatever those addictions look like. But even, the, there are obviously those who, whose, whose struggles took on a different shape, but energetically, they right away saw the connection because it's all connected. And not only that, you talk about porn addiction, okay? Homosexuality, infidelity. When you were four, how old were you when uh, when the abuse began? If I may ask, eight years old. Eight years old. At eight years old, you weren't a porn addict. Correct. At eight year old years old, you were a cute, angelic boy who was being exploited, crushed, manipulated, and abused. That energy, some an energy was planted in you. I promise you, that energy was very pure. That energy is what morphed into porn addiction. So the great tzaddik, the great person, can see that connection. He sees that connection. And he could find within himself energetically that same energy with which another person is going to develop into porn addiction, and therefore there's complete empathy. So when, if you would have to describe your struggle at eight, it was not your struggle at 16, but it was. And it would have continued, and it did, and that's what addiction does, right? It progresses. It becomes it progresses, more, more obvious. But at eight years old, it was a pure energy just trying to survive, trying to, could somebody love me? Could somebody notice me? Could somebody give me validation? Is there a world you know in which I'm safe? You know what's coming up for me when you're saying this is that uh, there was a time where I fought very strong. I was working closely with JCW, and I fought very strongly against... Um, people sexually abusing children and others. And I was anger. I was angry. And I, you know, we, we spoke publicly and you and I spoke at certain events. And there was a drive there, right? As, as tame as I was, and maybe I was tamer than some others, there was definitely a drive there that was, there's this disgusting sexual energy that must be ripped out from people. And I'm going to go and fight it. But you know what I was dealing with at the same time? My own, my own shame around my own sexual, around my own sexual behaviors. I was fighting it through others by saying theirs is worse. And in some ways it was worse. It certainly was less acceptable to society, but was it much different? Is it much different? And I think that it's kind of the reverse of what you're saying, right? In order to heal someone, we have to find the connection. In order to fight someone, (laughs) 
we have to we have to search for the disconnection and say, oh, you and I are different because yours went. Uh, you're evil. You're, you're the sick guy. You're the sick guy. You, I'm going to take down. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the good one. Could you, could you, you meant, you mentioned it twice. I want to pause there for a moment. You, you spoke about homosexuality and you connected it to, to the abuse. Is this something you can share about a personal experience? I, I connected homosexuality and abuse. Okay, I don't know that I did it on this um, conversation, but let's talk about homosexuality for a uh, for a moment. So we put on the flyer that we'll be talking about different topics. Okay, there was absolutely nothing that I got more feedback about than the topic of homosexuality. None. People advising me not to talk about it, not to go there. If I go somewhere, <laughs> if I go somewhere, it's from personal experience. Right? Experience either with myself or with others I've spoken to. What do, what do I know? I don't have a degree in anything. It's simply my life experience. The best because degree. I, Ellie, the best degree. Right. Bessel van der Kolk says, I know you, I, I watched the interview you had with him. He says, my, my patients are my textbooks. Right? That's where we learn. We learn from people. And then you start seeing similarities within people. And then, okay, this is this and that's that and the other thing. So I don't think we should um, fully address homosexuality in this conversation. But I think what we should address is why it's such a difficult topic. The amount of people who are struggling, it's unreal. The stories I hear, people who are, are married with five kids, but when they were 15 years old, had a uh, sexual relationship with someone of the same gender. And they sit there till this day, wondering whether or not they're gay, whether or not this is their identity, and they wrestle and they struggle. And I'll tell you what's even harder. Almost every single person who comes to terms with this and says, I need to work on it, it is almost impossible to meet someone and ask them for help who doesn't have a bias. There's uh, um, someone who called me a number of years ago, and when he reached out to me, he said, I w- I've been trying to get in contact with you for a few years, which is unlike me. It's not that easy to get a hold of me, but it's possible. He said, for a few years, I've been trying to reach you ever since I heard you talking about child sex abuse, some early JCW events. Eventually, it was only, I think, until after I did my talk on porn addiction that he reached me, so it was several years. And it was clear from the conversation, he was asking me a lot of questions, but he wasn't sharing something. So I said, tell me what's going on. Like, what is it really? What's really eating at you? What's really? The guy was in his 40s, from, unmarried. And I, I, um, I said, there's something you're holding on to. If I, it's not my own experience, I've definitely heard it, and I'm still standing. So he said, he said he's, I've, I've never been with a woman. From a very young age, I was abused by first, I think, his uncle, and then his grandfather, and then some of his siblings. It was a, a family with a lot of abuse. He said as he got older, 15 years old, he was in a relationship with a 25-year-old man. He said he doesn't even know when the abuse stopped or when real relationships took place. And now he's in his 40s, and he's only ever been with a man. But he's from, and that's his life and everything else. So I asked him one question. I said, whatever's going on, whoever you're having, whoever you're having these relationships with, is it too much? Is it too much for you? So he said, he said, yes, it is. I said, okay, I don't know how to help you figure out what your identity is and what your, you know, where it came from. I have no idea. But I know a place you can go to if you're obsessed with sex and it's too much. You've had it up to here with it. And I invited him to the 12 steps meetings that I was uh, attending. And uh, that I was attending. What I've watched this man go through and I've developed a close relationship with is till this day trying to figure out who he is who he is in the story, an Orthodox Jew, 
a gay person? Is it is his trauma? Is it this? Is it that? And he has yet to meet someone. He has yet to meet someone who does not have bias. He has yet to meet someone who, when the moment he starts telling them his story, like, oh, you must be a closeted gay man who's homophobic and you need to come out. Or, oh, you must be a traumatized, or someone else will say, oh, you must be a traumatized um, sexual abuse uh, victim and therefore, you're, and therefore you're attracted to men. So what I told him from day one, I said, listen, I have my own biases from my own experiences and my own, you know, from my own experiences, my own stuff I had to work through, as well as, I don't know, growing up religious and everything else. I'm going to do my best to keep my biases out of this. The only thing I can share with you is to heal everything around it. As little as possible, focus on this thing. Heal everything around it. And I said, my belief, and he's still on the path. He's still on the path. God bless him. He's working hard. Heal everything around it. And I said, I hope that one day a beautiful flower emerges and whatever that is that you're willing to, uh, you're, you're able to accept. And I know even this that I'm saying can trigger someone beyond. How can, he, how can I suggest to someone that they accept this lifestyle? How can I tell someone that they shouldn't run to this? Everyone has an opinion on the subject. I don't want to go to it fully. Love your advice. And I'll, I'll, I'll add, I'll add, and I just want to say this to all of us. The story I shared about the Mittler Rebbe a few moments ago, that when somebody came to me, he had to find the issue within himself. I heard myself from the Lubavitcher Rebbe probably two dozen times. He did not say the details about what the issue was. This is like an oral tradition in the Chabad world. <laughs> but the story itself, that the Mittler Rebbe would close the door and not see anybody until he found the issue in himself, I heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe probably 20, maybe 15, 20, or 25 times. He would, he would very often say it. For me, it's a timeless lesson. A person who ever comes to me or writes me an email or I meet somewhere and they ask me for advice about homosexuality, about any other challenge they're having in their life, the moment I go into a place of judgment, the moment I'm allergic, the moment I'm like, get get out of my life, you weirdo, you sick, I can't help them. I need to go into myself. We all, and this is true with all of us. I heard a therapist talking the other day on some, you know, big conversation to a thousand people about kids who who leave Yiddishkeit. And I was listening with my wife, and I have to say, you'll forgive me for being blunt. I got nauseous, and I didn't know. I'm a sensitive person. I feel, I didn't know why am I so nauseous, and then I realized there were two people on. There was Shimon Russell. And there was another therapist. Shimon Russell is all empathy. He's like one big piece of empathy. He also went through a lot with his kids. The other one was spewing ideas. I couldn't hear them because I could not feel the empathy. I, I just not. There was like this detachment, you know. You parents, losers, who didn't know what you're doing, <laughs> I'm the expert. We cannot help anybody like that anymore. It's it simply, energetically, it doesn't work scientifically it doesn't work, spiritually it doesn't work, emotionally it doesn't work. And this is hard. We all need humility. And again, confusion is the source of healing, the ignorance of it, especially when it comes to topics like this. What I want to add about homosexuality, and I guess our next session will be, we'll we'll discuss it more, right, Ellie? Yeah, yeah, before before you say, I just want to say that this silence that's around this topic, and many, you got a therapist who advised you not to go too far into it. I got more than one reminder, don't, you're touching a a time bomb. Yes, do not touch this topic, do not touch this topic. Whatever you do, you're going to upset someone. I just want a message to everyone who's 
playing any small part in keeping this silent, any judgment or any fear on their part, that as a result, as a result of the silence around the subject, the amount of suffering that exists in this topic is huge, huge. People who are struggling with so little hope because there are so few people talking about it. And the fact that you have someone like me who's spoken about my child's sex abuse, who's spoken about porn addiction, who's spoken about infidelity, who's spoken about a lot of different things. On this topic, I'm being um, more cautious and more careful before I proceed is because I understand that as I go there, there will be a price to pay. There will be a price to pay. And we have to think about that. We have to think about who is benefiting and who is being hurt from creating a world where we cannot honestly explore a subject. Exploration always happens with making mistakes. You can't explore. You don't dig and you find gold. That's not the way it works. You dig and you find all sorts of stuff, scorpions and snakes and everything else before you find gold. If we're going to explore this subject as a community, as a society, if we're going to explore this subject properly, we have to allow the room for exploration without perfection, with bumping into some things that, uh, that we shouldn't. And right now it's not there. And, we, and right now it's not we, there. And we have to recall... As a great African-American once said, God no makes no junk. If you're struggling with something, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's part of the design of your life. So it's not a Jewish thing to stigmatize this and say this is beyond the pale. This is a genuine condition of your soul, of your body, of your... of your. Isn't there a concept that the Torah doesn't speak... I don't know, is the Torah doesn't speak to fools or the Torah doesn't speak to... to um, not to angels, but to, to, to the anomaly, right? Oh, don't murder. Who are you going to talk to? The Rambam writes in his guide to the Torah, Torah addresses right. the, common, the, common fab, the common reality, the, the human condition. Right, so if the Torah is talking about homosexuality, then it's saying that more than just that more than fifty percent of men could go there. More than fifty percent of women could go there. That's what it means. I mean, is that what I'm asking? Torah arrived to Dabra. The Torah talks to the majority. That it's not. So many of us talk about the subject like, "Oh my goodness, how could you?" As far as I understand, in Greek societies. People married with kids. It was a you know hedonistic society, right? There, the um, elite in society all had married with families and everything else. All had a male, um, I don't know, like sexual mist. I don't know what you would call it, but a, a sexual male partner. And I believe Aristotle even encouraged, I believe, certain forms of pedophilia, where an older male had a child that he mentored sexually. This was part of Greek. Culture, and that's why when Torah speaks about it, it's speaking about something that was entrenched and is entrenched in in society. I don't think right, we, so have to, we have to. We say this idea. We have to give a dramatic number. I don't think that's the point. The Torah says, "Don't steal." The Torah speaks about lying. The Torah speaks about adultery because we commit adultery <laughs> because some Correct. of us cheat. I'd right. No, I don't mean that most go there. I mean that it's something like, for example, right? They say that. Men locked up in prison. You put someone in prison for 10 years. Let's say someone who could have never imagined being with someone of their own gender, but no touch, no affection, no anything for a number of years, right? 
things things can happen. It's not we pretend it's this thing that like not me, never ever, and then we see someone else who's going through the same experience. How disgusting, how repulsive. But if Tara arrived to Dabra, then it's talking about something that under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, depending on your uh, your point of view, pe- many people can end up there. So it's not something with this incredible shame around subjects is another thing that just destroys people. doesn't help anybody. There are men who turn to me, I could, I could say it may sound dramatic, and it's not because there's no drama around this. It could be every day, once a week, but constantly, nonstop letters of fathers, husbands, teenagers, people trying to get married in their 20s and their 30s, people who are married, who are struggling with homosexuality and they don't have anybody to speak to. And they finally open up to one person who's either dismissive, vindictive, judgmental, blames them. How can you do this? Right, Or dismisses it in some way, do a couple of things, and everything will go away. It's not a big deal. Right. It's it's extremely important to be able to combine two points, and that is absolute empathy. Absolute empathy. Always. Really tuning into who the person is and what they're going through. On the other hand, we don't have to fall prey to the agenda of many, many, many who wanted to romanticize homosexuality and make it the color of your eyes. You know, you have brown eyes, I have green eyes, he has blue eyes. It's natural, it's normal, it's never associated with any trauma. It's beautiful, it's an alternative lifestyle, which obviously the Torah doesn't believe. But we don't have to take extremes. You can have real, real empathy and then really tune into a person's life story and say, let's explore our life together. Like you said, let's heal every, every other area. And you may be very surprised in a positive way to see the results of that. And we must explore this more with tremendous respect and sensitivity and without fear of being labeled one extreme or the other extreme. And I also have to say, unfortunately, scientific research in this area has been the weakest and the poorest because of the politics. There is, and that, that's, what, that's, what, that's another part that I was referring to, is the bias. Horrible, that's a horrible situation, and I've asked many scientists about this, including somebody who wrote a book on this, Homosexual and the Politics of Truth, a friend of mine, the psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, he's also a physicist, and you know, there's so much politics around this that the regular scientific research that has been employed in so many other areas, over here, it's like... <laughs> This is a taboo in the secular community because there is a very strong agenda to completely disconnect us from any possible other issue besides it being the most normal expression of the core human self, which uh, I don't think is true. My, my own right, my own experiences have been, I mean, from my, myself and others, and keep in mind, I, I live in South Beach, right? The meetings I go to are in South Beach. I've had... Gay sponsors, gay sponsees, Jewish, non-Jewish, the whole, the whole gamut. So it's something that I've spoken to many people with. And there is no, there's, if in, in a setting, like a meeting where people are completely honest and in South Beach where there's a sense that they are accepted, right? Because it li- might be literally rife. I'm pretty sure my meeting, like the meetings that I attended for many years, the 12-step meetings, were, were mostly gay men. And I say, when I say gay men, I mean people who have adopted the lifestyle of living a gay lifestyle. Jewish, non-Jewish, everything. But 
So I'm I'm talking from that experience, and there is no consensus. There is no. It's it's you're talking about sexual dynamics, which is so different person to person, and so different within so people complex, year to year. So complex, yeah, so complex. Mutum, right? One thousand and one factors that contribute to it. You know, people love to Correct. say it's a gene. You're born with it. It's a gene. That's it. It's like your height. Please. <laughs> okay, we're all, we're already going a little further in it than I. Um, I just want to stand corrected because I, I may have come across wrong, and I just want to apologize. When I said you mentioned before homosexuality connection to abuse, I didn't mean something about yourself. I meant you were mentioning the fact that people grow up and suffer from homosexuality. Not that that I just want to correct that. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I wasn't uh, I wasn't necessarily referring to a personal experience. I wasn't not referring to a personal experience either. Well, when right came across, and I apologize if it came across yeah, that. Yeah, that's fine. When when we address it, we address it wholesomely. But I thought now before I address it, let's at least address. It's a big, big challenge. I have to say, why it's such a big challenge? Who is being helped by this? Who is being helped by this? Who is being helped by how difficult it is to talk about this topic? And, 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 but I, and, I, I'm, and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. Many rabbis and therapists I've spoken about this to told me they're scared. They're scared. Well, they you don't have to go to rabbi therapist. Right job. here, I'm scared. Huh? Right here, I'm scared. Right here, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this? What is, we've spoken a lot, and this topic has been around sexuality. What, what is this sex thing? Why is it so fraught with so much complexity and challenges and struggles? Sexual, I'm thinking like abuse sexually as a child, in my case. That was someone else's sexual desire has gone awry. My porn addiction, sexual desire gone, gone awry. My infidelity, sexual desire has gone awry. Right? All of these, what, what is this thing? <laughs> What is this thing? Why do we need it? Why is it dis- why why is it killing everybody? I don't want everybody? to romanticize something that can be so painful and traumatic, but I think it'll be helpful to understand. And this is a really it's the core of Kabbalah. And that is the energy of sexuality is the holiest energy in the world. The energy of sexuality, the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Lee, the greatest mystic in Jewish history. All of the divine energies that interact to create the world, he calls them intimate interactions, zivugim, on the spiritual levels, beyond the human embodiment. Sexual, the sexuality of human beings is the embodiment of, of, of the, one of the deepest energies of the divine that is at the core of existence, which was all about love, about a relationship, about connectivity. If God is infinite, he's perfect, there's no relationship. And therefore what? So because it's one of the most powerful energies, then where there's light, there's dark? So I think, in many ways, it touches us. The pleasure of it, and the tragedy of it, the blessing of it, and the curse of it, touches us on, in our deepest places. In other so, words, so then, when, go ahead, when go it's ahead. tampered with, you're not tampering with a pinky of mine. You're not tampering with a skill of mine. You're tampering with something that is essential to the formation of my identity. And when it has its healthy outlets and productive outlets, it is so meaningful and sacred. And we have to respect that. We really have to respect that. Right. There was a uh, year. People used to dismiss molestation. You know this, Ellie. Yeah, it was nothing. Right. Yeah, right. Somebody wants eh, get over it. Get over it. You know, it's like telling a mother lost two children. And just get over it. You have other kids. 
When you tell somebody and, to get over something that really played right. with their very identity, Bessel van der Kolk told me, he's told me something very powerful. He said, when you were sex- if somebody was sexually molested at a young age, before their eye was formed, he says, their ver- the very core of their identity is shattered. There's no eye. There's, um, I was already, I had an identity and I had a dignity. Now it's painful. It's sad. It's crazily painful. He says, but for many people, it's not painful. It's more than painful. The I is not formed yet. He says, the very I is trauma. Oh, he's saying, okay, he's saying if someone's sexuality was affected prior to them becoming a self, so basically anyone in childhood then by the time the eye gets formed, it's a, it's a seed with a scratch on it. It's a very difficult... He said, you know, he said, he said, it's, he said it's not you have trauma. He says, you are trauma. Wow. I have trauma is already a blessing. I have trauma, okay. I have trauma. No, I right, have I've, trauma. I don't even know of an eye without trauma. We need a lot of compassion for that. I've shared with people that there's no way to understand, this is just intuitive amount of understanding, there's no way to understand the damage of sexual abuse without recognizing a spiritual reality in the world. Because if you have a child who had a good childhood, right, from zero to 15, and one time a teacher abused them physically, the likelihood that there's significant trauma in this person is not high. It'll kind of get melted away in that... um, and the rest of their experiences. But this same person has a sexual abuse experience one time. That'll affect them well into uh, adulthood. Until it's dealt with, it'll affect them. So I, to me, it was like the only way to explain it is that the sexuality and the spirit of a person is connected, and the sexuality is so connected. So therefore, it's, therefore it affects them on such a deep level. So what is the... And you know why? In, in Tanakh, the Holy of Holies in the Beis Hamikdash is called Cheder Hamitais, the bedroom. <laughs> and what was there? The two cherubs, the male and the female, gazing at each other. Why does God choose that image? In every yeshiva, they would ban it. <laughs> but it's in the Holy of Holies, on top of the Aaron, with the Luchais that Moshe brought down, the holiest things in the world. Why? Because right. essentially, we're all one. We're all rooted in infinite oneness. We are all one, Literally. And creation is an act of perceived separateness to recreate a oneness with choice and passion and enthusiasm, which is sexuality. That's what it is. And when you tamper, when somebody tampers with my sexuality, what they're violating is something... But that's the sexual abuse side of things. And what about the other side? The urges, the addictions, and... Because sometimes people don't have the... It tampered, and there's all these urges that go sideways, and the infidelity, like so the many Alter problems Abba with sexuality. Tanya, he says one of the most beautiful things. He says the reason that sexuality generates the deepest pleasure in the world, more than cheesecake, <laughs> and I like cheesecake, more than sushi, <laughs> and I like sushi, even more than music, and I love music, <laughs> and more than a good book, and more than a good movie, and more than a lot of great things. More than, you know, we, we enjoy the world. But there's something about sexuality that is atomic. It's nuclear energy. And he says that's the moment, that's the moment where we become divine-like. We, we're at most divine. That's why it's the moment when we create life. If I'm an artist or a speaker, oh, I can't create life thing. through a speech. I can hopefully create an audience that wants me back. 
But life, life is created through sexuality. In other words, we are most godlike in the moment of sexuality. And God is the source of all pleasure. So it's really going to our deepest and holiest moment. And that's why we create a child from that. A child is the greatest miracle in the world. It's greater. Everything else that I create is just a development. But here, you literally create a, a new organism, a new independent life that lives on for eternity. And when you stand face to face with God, every detail counts. And dysfunction becomes very, very significant. And, very magnificent. And I should just add that, you know, Jewish law discusses a lot intimacy. And people often ask me, you know, do we have to really spoil the fun and then let young men and women explore their lives? And I always explain to them, if you would understand the meaning behind every law of halacha, you will see that it was all designed not to spoil fun, but to actually to seize the moment, to be able to allow a couple to maximize the opportunity within their intimate relationships. Because it's so, so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to go into a place of narcissism, to go into a place of survival, to go into a place of selfishness. These are normal things. I want to satisfy myself. But if I can always come back to the relationship, if my physical sexuality and my spiritual sexuality, our spirit, can merge it's a different experience. It's meaningful. It doesn't last for five minutes. It lasts for 90 years. But this takes this takes a lot of awareness and it takes a lot of work and a lot of healing. And, and we fail and we stumble and that's also part of it. And we don't have to stigmatize ourselves. You know, there's a lot, I want to tell you, I know at least one yeshiva, the whole yeshiva is watching this. <laughs> they got a big screen. <laughs> Maybe Beautiful. there's others, but there's a yeshiva. I have to give credit to the administration. They gave them permission. These are teenagers who are dealing with all this, and they're open about it. And the yeshiva, they put a big screen. So I just want to tell all these teenagers whom I love and I cherish you and say, you know, sexuality is such a profound and, and, and rich expression of self. Judaism is not trying to spoil the fun. What it is challenging us is to harness that type of energy in places and ways that really bring out the best within us and allow our deepest selves to celebrate relationships. And for that, we have to be sensitive. Who is getting our sexual energy? When? In what context? And we have to have yeah, compassion was... when we fail. We have to have compassion. There was a question I shared with you um, a couple of days before the event about someone saying... Maybe instead of cleaning up the mess, you know, the way maybe you can consider this conversation, a lot of the work you do now, that we can start it at earlier stages in the yeshiva age. And maybe some of the ways we're setting people up for failure. So I guess this yeshiva is an example of um, addressing it earlier on. Like, why set people up for failure? Exactly. So many boys are struggling. So many boys are struggling. And they're often taught, that, like we said before, that struggle is evil. And, and the greatest people don't struggle. And it's a terrible, terrible crime against our boys and our girls. Every soul comes down to fix, to repair, to heal. When I confront my traumas, <laughs> I heal not only myself. I heal all of the previous reincarnation of my soul. I heal my ancestors. I heal the world. We heal each other. You sound like Mashiach now. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> 
<laughs> Rebbe used to come, he used to love to say a line from a book called Moira Nine, which is a Hasidic work, that every every soul has a spark of Mashiach. And when each of us <laughs> reveals it together, the spark creates a flame, and that becomes a collective consciousness that redefines the earth. So it's true Beautiful. what you're saying. <laughs> and, and, and your when brother you say Mashiach is sick, it means how do you know you identify the spark of Mashiach in you? When you can speak about those things that break you. And, and for me, ah. that's such a rich, rich idea. So we usually say, oh, the Mashiach in me is the perfect me. No, no. That's the <laughs> exile me. That's the fake Mashiach. That's the false Mashiach. There's always a false Messiah. Mm-hmm. The real Mashiach is the Mashiach that can, 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 can display struggle. That's that's where my Mashiach is. And that's where I heal others. That's where I heal myself. That's where I find my greatness. Beautiful. I want to say, I want to say something about what you're talking earlier, sexual abuse, and then ask you a question around um, the sexuality that you're talking about. So your brother, Simon, shared with me a sicha by the, I think we're by the Rebbe Rashab, on the words, Shalach Yadai Bishlemov Chilo Brisei. And he has a talk online where he kind of takes like paragraph by paragraph or word by word through it. And if I understood correctly from that, it's that the brisa, right, the bris of someone, right, that the sexual energy is shleimai, is their completeness, right? Are you familiar with the sikh I'm referring to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This uh, can you explain that concept because I don't want to butcher it, uh, but it was very healing for me to when I when I heard this. So I imagine it'll be healing for for others as well because so many of us. Uh, minimize abuse. The reason it's painful when others minimize sexual abuse is because people who are sexually abused do it to themselves. <laughs> and so when someone else does it, it becomes a reminder of all the many years that we did it to ourselves, which is not the way to address things. We don't, uh, we want to see what's going on. We put it under a microscope, we magnify it. And exactly. then we, and, then and I would it. add that somebody who does not, who did not either bec- was not sexually abused themselves or did not do real research and listen to stories of sexual abuse, should not have the chutzpah to give perspective or advice about this. Because people who have been sexually abused, the levels of suffering are unimaginable to people who don't know about it. And it's not just suffering when they get married. That too. But the levels of emotional, psychological anxiety, incessant anxiety, day in and day out, for 10, 20, 30 years. Another person takes for granted walking into a wedding, saying mazel tov and going home. And for this boy or girl dealing with the social anxiety, just one example, a week before and a week after, they're sick. And that's just one little ramification of another million ramifications. So to minimize these things without real empathy and understanding... Is simply despicable. It's 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 uh, it's unforgivable. It's probably your survival skill. <laughs> it's probably your survival <laughs> method that you have to minimize it because maybe something happened to you or whatever. I'm not going to go there at the moment because I don't know. But be be humble. We have to all be humble about this. You know, uh, it's it's a very serious. The the I think that the sikh of the Rebbe Rashab about about sexuality. I would like to elaborate more next time. I'm just gonna just say one point that he brings out there. And he says that essentially, and it's a very, very intense line, essentially the 
energy of Hasidus, which is the energy of the Balshemtiv and the Alter Rebbe, which is known as the Torah of Mashiach, the Geula Torah, is essentially the spiritual healing of sexual dysfunction. In other words, the raw, deep spirituality of Judaism is essentially divine sexual energy. That's what it is. And, and therefore, it is so, so profound because it literally touches on your deepest, deepest divine core. And when somebody plays around with that, they're not playing around with something external. They're, they're touching, they're, they're damaging, they're violating your, your, the apple of your eye, the, the purest part of your soul. And we wonder you know, what, the, what happened. Somebody played with, right. uh, with his... Uh, right, this is the minimization. This is what I, what's the big deal? Something happened to me 15 years ago. What's the big deal? But, but that, that, that's a mistake. And it, it's, it's, from a Jewish perspective, it's a mistake because it's, there's something very pure about it. And that's why, that's where we create life. Life is created from sexuality. It's not created from imagination, from creativity, from scholarship, from meditation, from prayer. It's not. It's created from the sexual organ. All of life. My, my, my understanding is this sikha is talking about sexual abuse, right? I just want to literally talk about sexual abuse. Is that the way? The way, the way I heard it is that, unfortunately, most of the talk they did not write down. I guess it was very overwhelming, and the writers were astounded. This You're talking about the, the early 1900s, the early 1900s. This is not a talk from the 1980s, the early right. 1900s. <laughs> So a lot of there is, is, is it's, it's hinted language, so there's a lot of speculation. But the key that he's bringing out over there is how, how Hasidus is the ultimate sublimation of the sexual energy, the harnessing of it into a divine, into what it really, really, really is. In fact, he even has a line there, if I'm not mistaken, because I haven't seen it in many years. My brother showed it to me many years ago, but it's been many years. I have to look it up. I'm going to look it up before our next seminar. But I think there's a line there that somebody who doesn't understand this energy cannot understand the depth of Jewish spirituality. <laughs> Interesting. Because it, it's, a very, it's very intimate. It's sensual energy. It's not, it's not scholarship. It's not artificial intelligence. It's not science. It's the core, it's the core of existence. And that's why Judaism is very sensitive to it. It treats it as very, very holy. It's very, very... And that's why it's such a release. By the way, that's why if I'm depressed or I'm grouchy or I'm anxious, why is masturbation such a release? Why? Why can't I drink Coca-Cola? Why can't I just eat potato chips, watch a movie? No, the guy has to masturbate six times a day. Why? Did we ever wonder? The answer is... Masturbation is the greatest cover-up for the greatest anxiety because of its intensity, because it's a fast release of the core of your soul. So you're feeling all the energy and pleasure of your neshama, but just completely misdirected and camouflaging the pain and numbing it, rather than allowing my sexuality to be a continuum of my healthy self, rather than a cover-up for the pain I don't want to deal with. But as a cover-up, it's the best cover-up. It's fascinating. It's <laughs> masturbate for it's, 25 years and not deal with anything. And it numbs pain like nothing else. Even my phone is not as good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we didn't go too far into it, but I, th- there was a sense from what you're talking about what it would look like 
to have healthy sexuality on an individual level. Meaning with a couple and a relationship and a deep intimacy to have a sexuality. We didn't go too far into it, but there was at least enough of a, a picture painted. From a communal and society perspective, it seems to me, and I actually believe that there's a, a study, Yale or Harvard, that did a study connecting, I think, por- pornographic addiction and religious upbringing. And there was a correlation. So meaning there is a sexual repression that creates some of this, some of this dysfunction. I, I, I think there is this research paper. I never, um, I, I didn't go to it myself, but certainly has been anecdotally proven, like you said, hundreds of times, anecdotally proven hundreds of times that there seems to be a shame that the religious environment adds that, um, contributes to the addiction itself. So my question is, in a few sentences, what is, a healthy sexual society look like? Because uh, we spoke about taboo. So these are normally taboo. Is it taboo for protection? But what does it look like? In the healthiest, in the ideal environment, how are we dealing with sexuality as a as a society? So I'll tell you a little story, and it's, it's such a beautiful story. The Gemara says, the Talmud says at the end of Tractate Yuma, that if you, if you uh, emit semen, sperm, on the night of Yom Kippur, you may die within the year. And if you don't die within the year, it means God loves you. That's what the Talmud says. So there was a man who <laughs> released seed on the night of Yom Kippur. He had a wet dream. Listen to this. And he woke up and he was horrified. He's going to die, right? So who does he come running to? He comes running to the Alter Rebbe. He comes running to the Alter Rebbe, who's one of the greatest halachic authorities of his time, the founder of Chabad, the author of the Tanya. How do we know this story? The Tzemach Tzedek, the grandson of his Alter Rebbe, writes it. And the Alter Rebbe hears, and you know what Alter Rebbe does? He starts laughing. <laughs> he starts laughing. And he says to his grandson or to another colleague, he says, this man Nebuch thinks the Gemara is talking about him? <laughs> of course, he has wet dreams, yeah, because his body releases sperm on Yom Kippur and not on Yom Kippur. He started to laugh. He's like, he thought that the Gemara is talking about him. The Gemara is talking about somebody who's in a state of consciousness that if it happens on Yom Kippur, it's like, whoa. He says, that it happened to you on Yom Kippur, what's the big deal? It happened to you on Yom Kippur. I learned so much from this story. Like, you have to know the context. You know, this poor man would live in fear. The Alter Rebbe said, it's fine, you're going to live, you're not going to die, God doesn't hate you, you have to know who you <laughs> are. Yes, your body sometimes releases seed. Now, teenagers sometimes come to me, they didn't even do it consciously, it's in their dream, they're already feeling guilty. We have to teach people, first of all, biology is not evil. Your body is a wonderful tool, it's a divine tool that was created in the image of God. There are things that naturally happen. People should feel good about themselves, number one. Number two, this is at night. Even when there are situations where people get involved in this, we spoke about this last time. You know, when I see somebody who was sexually bullied as a child or was exposed to pornography in camp in sixth grade and fifth grade, when they develop puberty and they're going to the mikveh in the morning and they're seeing their friends and they're feeling all this arousal, and then these poor kids are told, that they're cut off from God and they're the most evil thing in the world and they don't have a chalik in Elam Haba. It's, it's like, terrible. 
this kid, when he was 12, you think he had a choice? You think this poor kid who was sexually bullied, was exposed to porn, maybe been molested, may even have been raped, or whatever happened, or even not, some other stuff that happened? First of all, the society is hypersexualized, so everyone's getting a pretty poor education around sexuality. Be sensitive, and we have to be able to tell people, yes, masturbation is not a good thing, but it's not a good thing when you're in a position to make choices, <laughs> which means you know yourself, you like yourself, you love yourself, you value yourself, you see your sensations, you're not in survival mode, you have expansive consciousness. And then you can make a choice, and then make the right choices. So, so if I if I understand if, if I understand how this relates to the question, what you're saying is that in a healthier society, you gave the story of the Alter Rebbe, we'd be able to speak about these subjects with respect, with sensitivity, but to speak about it, and it would be it would be there. The, the all of the shame that's surrounding it has to be eliminated. A boy in a comes to society. me. I finished giving a class. A boy wants to see me. We finished my. He's getting married tomorrow night. This happened a little while ago. I say, okay, mazel tov, beautiful. He says, but I'm addicted to porn already since age 14 and I'm 24 and I'm getting married tomorrow night. I'm like, you had to come the night before your wedding? <laughs> he says, I was embarrassed. I'm like, how many of your friends are dealing with this? He says, I'm embarrassed to tell you, you're not going to believe me. I say, how many of your click? He says, 97%. I said, you're exaggerating? He says, no, I'm minimizing. My point <laughs> is, so many of our boys and girls are suffering. And they need people to talk to who can understand and be empathetic and direct them. And also teach them that even in cases where you have no trauma and you're a perfectly healthy boy and you make a bad, immoral choice, okay. <laughs> right? Every 100%. shul, somebody who drives to shul on Shabbos, uh, a Jew is not supposed to drive on Shabbos, but they open the door of the shul and they smile. And there's a Jew who doesn't put on tefillin and he gets welcome Shabbos. And there's a Jew who gossips. And the Gemara says in Erkin that gossip is as bad as, as murder, <laughs> adultery, and idolatry, and we let them in shul. Back to the homosexual issue. Somebody's struggling with something and suddenly they're not, they're not, they have to feel uncomfortable in our shuls. And if a teenager is struggling with something, we're all struggling with something. That's why we have to be here for each other. That's why we have to help I, each other. And I think when we can create that conversation, mentors, teachers, parents. Now, I'm not saying that it's a mitzvah that the Rebbe or the teacher has to get up at the beam and give a sermon to everybody about this because sometimes there's different students with different sensitivities, different backgrounds, different ages, so maybe it shouldn't be a public conversation, maybe it should be an intimate conversation, private conversation, that's perfectly fine. But it should be a conversation. It should be a conversation, and it should be a conversation, and, and, and people have to educate themselves what to say. Don't just tell them it's not a big deal. Don't just tell them I also did it. Don't just tell them get over it, you know, because he's struggling with something. And if there's a real trauma there, and there's often a real trauma there, tell him to get over it is, is, is really unfair. So people have to learn. We have to learn how to listen. We have to learn how to understand what's going on. We have to learn how to guide people in this area with tremendous, tremendous respect and empathy. But the most important thing is not to make them feel stuck and to hate themselves because self-hate breeds catastrophe. 
self-loathing breeds confusion and chaos, self-deprecation and, and 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 the religious guilt is 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 the greatest disaster for serving God in a loving way and for building for building a productive life. And you know and one I of the most important else, skills all of us. If somebody comes to you and you're triggered, and and you feel the need to to push them away or to or to dismiss them or to be sharp with them. Stop, be curious, because you're dealing with life and death issues. You're dealing with a very sensitive issue. If I'm being triggered, I'm responding from a place of trigger, I'm not the right person to respond to this at the moment. I need to do inner work. So this is very, very important. Somebody comes to me, homosexuality, you know, trauma, this trauma, whatever it is, a teenager, his or her issues. I may have my triggers, that's fine. I'm also a human being. I got my traumas too, but I have to notice it. I have to take a deep breath, and after it's your traumas, not their traumas. Huh? It's your traumas, not their traumas. Meaning, you have to do your work. But I can't respond. I can't respond from my place of trauma. We we often project in our answers, and and now this poor girl or boy thinks it's a religious answer because it's his teacher. (laughs) So he's he's giving the word of God, right? Little does he know that his teacher is a trauma victim. (laughs) He's not giving the word of God. He's giving the word of trauma. So it's one traumatized victim to another traumatized victim. The teacher is now a four-year-old responding to a three-year-old. I received an email leading up to this uh, where someone asked, can you ask Rabbi Jacobson? I asked my, my rabbi, and I want to ask Rabbi Jacobson the question also. My cousin is a um, woman who's in a lesbian relationship. And I asked my rabbi, is it okay for them to come over to my house for Shabbos? And the rabbi said, no, because it's not good. We're responsible to educate our children, and it's not good education for our children. And I said, what would the rabbi say? I said, I understand you want me to ask Rabbi Jacobson, but what would the rabbi say? Maybe I can address this one. What would the rabbi say about um, if she was in a married to a man or in a relationship with a man, and they didn't keep Shabbos, and they came over on Shabbos, and it was very obvious that they didn't? What would the rabbi say? They also can't come? Said no, they'd be okay if they come. So I said, we don't need a rabbi to answer this question. We don't. You don't need a rabbi. It's so obvious. If someone is viewing not keeping Shabbos and homosexuality in a different category from where, how does one one important for the education of the children and the other? It's obvious. It's obvious that it's the person's own, the rabbi in this case, his own. Call it trauma. Call it misunderstanding. Call it judgment. You know, lack of. Um, he hasn't evolved on this on on this issue that he's making a distinction where there is none. Unless you tell me there's a, you know I don't know the whole Rambam, but unless there's a Rambam that says we should allow people who don't keep Shabbos around us, but someone in a lesbian relationship, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, so there's really two issues. You're 100 percent right that my house, if it's open to the person who's driving on Shabbos, based on the principle that even the Chazaynish, one of the greatest Lithuanian scholars. Uh, says that we view most secular Jews today as what the Rambam calls Tinoikas Shanishbu, which means it's not about judgment and vindictiveness. It's really about, you know, not appreciating Judaism, at least to a significant degree, including religious Wouldn't, people. wouldn't most religious Jews also go in this category? Many. <laughs> Many. Many. I'm saying if yes. we're so raised. Once in- we realize this, you're absolutely right. There's no distinction. The one thing that I could understand is. That if a person has children and they're young, and uh, assuming they're in- innocent, 
which is not always the case. Sometimes parents think they are. But, uh, you know, I may not want my kids to have to know everything about homosexuality and lesbianism before necessary age. But I, but okay, so tell them don't kiss at the table. That, that, exactly. Doesn't mean they can't come to the yeah, table. Exactly. That's a very legitimate thing. If I have a certain home, some people have, you know, very limited internet in their home or other procedures in their home where they really want to create an environment of, of, of purity and innocence and sacredness, which the secular world today does not like. So, yes, that's, you know, ashrecha. That's a wonderful thing. And, and when, but that's true about anything. It's true. But that would be the same thing. If you're saying, exactly. that, if you're saying, I don't want exactly. anyone in my house like that, don't pull up in a car so I don't exactly. have to explain to my kids exactly. about people that don't and there, and there are have homes, a job. And there are fine, homes. no problem. There are homes, right. If we treated everyone, if we yeah. treated everyone who was homosexual, homosexual the same way we treated people who didn't keep Shabbos, I think we'd be okay. I agree. We don't need the stigma. We don't need the stigma. These people are struggling in one area. Other people are struggling in another area, Right. And, and, and the way we deal with it today is not by throwing rocks at them. No Chabad house, no Eisha Torah center, no other Kiruv, Breslev, Arachim, whatever, throws rocks at them, right? Instead, they bring them in and they smile. The same is true with every other sin in the Torah. They're struggling. And here, the right. struggle mm-hmm. may be much, much deeper because it's associated with a lot of deep, deep stuff, especially many cases of homosexuality that I'm aware of, where you could see, or I can't say you could see, but it's very possible that it's associated with very profound challenges in their upbringing and in their sexual development and in trauma. So we need much more compassion, much more sensitivity, much more. 100%. And if I do I'm, want to say... I'm, and if I'm experiencing stigma, I have to look into myself. I have to say... 100%. What, what's being triggered, which is fine. I, I, we're triggered. We're, that you're a human being. But, you know, don't camouflage it as, as sacred. You know, the worst thing is, I have trauma. Fine. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Don't turn it into the epicenter of holiness. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It's a, there's a brokenness. Right. There's a brokenness. There's a fear. I'm afraid, maybe... Maybe I'm allergic. Maybe something is being aroused in me, something that I'm repressing. You know, these, are, these are normal things. It's an opportunity to explore. When you have a trigger, by the way, it's an amazing opportunity for growth. If you don't have a trigger, a you don't grow. If you have a trigger, <laughs> ah, so what I got to work on. I did a podcast called The Value of Trigger Therapy. Nice. <laughs> are we um, still going to have what to talk about yes. in seminar two and three? We were supposed to go for we, an hour. I see we, we went for an hour and two hours and 15 minutes, Ellie. Let's get some questions. You're the <laughs> only guy who's worse than me. Two to tango over here. Once we're in, once once we're in, we're in. Um, there was a thought I had, but let's get to some uh, let's get to some some questions. Oh, one thing I wanted to say was that in the next conversation, I would like to get to because people asked it last time, get to some of the practical solutions that I've um, incorporated into my own life, and right in order to distance myself. From um, porn ad- from porn addiction and for other such sexual obsession and these behaviors. But one thing I do want to say, which is relevant to the conversation, I dedicate to practical solutions to addictions and homosexuality. I think our third seminar will be probably continuation of some of those stuff and psychedelics. Psychedelics, okay. It makes sense to me. I do want to say this, just because it's relevant to to our conversation here, is that one of the essential components of um, recovering from addiction is an ability to be gentle with oneself. It's so, so, so essential. I, um, I, there's a, a guy I've known for a few years whose abuse and other traumas has resulted in very severe physical ailments. 
stomach issues and otherwise. And up to about six months ago, he was at home, like unable to move. Unable to move, unable to work, unable to do anything. Just going to a doctor, he was afraid to drive his own car because he can have a, an attack in his intestines or something, whatever was bothering him um, on, the, uh, on the road. So over the last few months, we've been communicating, and he's obviously in a difficult financial situation. I've been helping him with some of his doctor bills associated with these things. And in the last two to three weeks, he's back at work, and he's doing well, better. He's able to go to work, and some of the physical ailments are there, and as they ease up, he's able to deal on the emotional things. And the other day, he sends me a long text message, and he's saying how disappointed his wife is with him sexually because of A's physical ailments, but B, there's also emotional stuff. He was sexually abused, and he has a hard time being with his wife um, physically, and he, she feels like he's, the, you know, he's not meeting those needs and everything else. And he feels terrible, and now he feels even worse because he hasn't even addressed it. It's this issue that's been going on for a long time, and he hasn't addressed. I received this message. I said, my dear brother, you have so much to celebrate. You're out of bed for a few weeks. Now you want to beat yourself up over another issue? Celebrate. Let's go to dinner. Let's have a party. Let's do something to celebrate the fact that now your physical ailments aren't there, but instead you want to take a baton to yourself, absolutely decimate yourself, and then you'll wonder why three months later you're not healing again, and now your physical ailments have come back. And this is it's so essential that we're able to celebrate the successes. I shared on our last conversation a relapse that I had in pornography after four and a half years sober. I had, it was the first time I shared it, shared it publicly. It was the first time I shared that, um, that relapse and that story. And afterwards, I got a lot of positive messages from it. The skill that was necessary for me to get out of that and stay sober was to be gentle with myself. And I had to figure out how to be gentle with myself in a way that I never knew because it was my first time experiencing it. To be gentle despite the fact that people have publicly recognized me or I think people have publicly recognized me for um, dealing with this porn addiction well. And for nearly being five years sober and in the 12 steps they celebrate years and oh, five years, what a milestone. It feels like a milestone year. And I was nearly there and four years and nine months in, I relapse. So I have all of these reasons to really take a bat to myself. And had I done that, that one thing, had I done that, today I would still be in, um, I, I would still be in, the, in that place. This skill of gentleness is so important, so essential. If someone is sober for a long period of time, they've learned how to celebrate small wins and they've learned how to be gentle with, with, with themselves when they, um, when, they fall, when they fall, when they slip. So, 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 so essential, but we can talk more. Um, just a teaser for the, uh, for the long conversation. Tyler, can we get some questions? Did everyone, did everyone hear that? Hopefully not. <laughs> was that heard by everyone repeat else? It, repeat it. It was, it was a massage. I, I think we should get a question. It, it was basically saying someone who listened to our last conversation, who after listening to that conversation, um, he said it was the first time he felt acceptance around his um, sexual obsession or addiction. And since then, he's joined a 12-step um, fellowship, and for nine months, I believe he's sober and feeling better and alive. And so this statement was, someone wrote it, and it was upvoted as well. But the purpose is question, so. So the question was, and it's interesting, I got the question um, also in uh, on Instagram leading up to, uh, leading up to, to this, is what do I need to be fully healed in order to enter a relationship? This wasn't the language they used, but on Instagram I got this question as part of this, saying, what questions do you have for uh, Rabbi YY and myself? And it was, do I need to be fully healed to enter a relationship? 
And I said, yes, you need to be fully healed from the idea that there's such a thing as fully healed. <laughs> so <laughs> what, um, I, I think this is an important question because you touched on it, you touched on it also with the, the, the young man who said to you, I'm 24 years old, I'm about to get married, I'm struggling with this, right? Almost having cold feet, like I have such issues, how can I step into this this uh, this marriage? So the balance between the healing that is necessary before marriage and afterwards. Such an important question, and I think the balance is, as Ellie just said, the only ones of us who are perfectly healed are the delusional ones among us who need a different type of healing. The core is, if I can really, really see them, see the parts of me that need healing and be actively engaged in repair and work and awareness and transformation and healing, then you can have an amazing relationship. In fact, you can have one of the deepest relationships because as I said, we said earlier, you know, when couples and partners and friends could communicate with each other, bringing in the parts that need healing into the relationship, it becomes the most powerful relationship. If you and I can only talk about things we agree with and we connect to and the parts of us that are wholesome and beautiful, it's a fake relationship because my authentic my authentic me is hidden and your authentic you is hidden somewhere. And, and you know what? It leaks out in, in other ways, passive-aggressive ways or other addictions. So it's only when I could bring that, if I could, if you could bring it into the relationship, then you're ready for a relationship. If you can't bring it into the relationship, you still need a lot of work. But if you could bring it to the relationship and, and you need, sometimes don't, you know, a lot of things we're talking about sound very good, but you can't always try it on, at home on your own. We all need support systems. All of us. We need mentors. We need friends. We need good relationships. We need therapists. We need healers. We need uh, people who, who, who we trust. And we can be open with every one of us. There's not a single person in the world who does not need a good friend, a mentor, a, a best friend, a spouse, a coach, a therapist, whatever it is, a mashpia who who can really, really be there for you. So, you know, don't, I'm going to try this at home because things can become explosive because, you know, our trauma leaks out in all dysfunctional, in all types of places. But if you have this support and you're working on it and you bring it into the relationship, then you can have a, an amazing relationship. There will be setbacks. There will be failures. You're going to make mistakes. But if you can show up and apologize and be genuine, you're going to learn from every one of your mistakes. But you won't be able to fool people with this. In other words, don't lie. Because don't be deceiving that the relationship is going to trump and overpower all the dysfunction. Dysfunction surfaces even in the most beautiful days and nights. The night that you're having your wife had a baby the night of your son's bar mitzvah, the night of your wedding, the night of your wedding, the night of your child's wedding. Don't think that this function just dies and goes to sleep forever. It takes conscientious effort and sustained discipline every single day. That's why in Judaism we daven three times a day. That's why we say Shema twice a day. That's why we, we learn constantly. It's not in vain. It's a daily battle for transcendence. It's a daily battle to bring my true self into my life and allow my parts to be guided by my true self and not to dictate my true self. If you're ready for that, and only you and God knows that, I don't, you could lie to me, but your wife is going to figure it out fast. 
then your relationship is going to be amazing. If I answered that question from experience, um, obviously, you know, it's there was a there was at this period in time I wasn't living a from lifestyle at all, so I don't know how to match this with the the lifestyle. But um, I shared the experience of cheating on my wife, and then eventually from there recognizing the issues that I had, and that I had to finally start facing some of them, and being honest with myself, and that's how I entered a 12-step program and recovery and that whole, um, that whole healing journey. I needed a period of time where I was not in relationship at all, zero communication, no dating, no zero, 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 zero. And once I got to the place where I was no longer, I no longer had such trouble being alone, then I felt like I was ready to be in a relationship. So till then I was I was demanding too much from the other person. But on the other hand, the kind of paradox is that there's certain healing that can't happen outside of a relationship. At the at the risk of triggering all the therapists who talk about codependency, there's certain things that we cannot heal on on our own and it's in the context of a relationship that something that closeness that you know there was something that I was dealing with like literally woke up inside me in the last like probably about a month ago, and I was dealing with a level of pain and sadness that I didn't know I still had inside me. I'm like, with all these years and all these psychedelic journeys and healing and 12 steps, how is this still there? And what, I, what I'd what i realized in, in working through it, and maybe I'm still working through it, is that the there was a level of closeness that has happened between my wife and I in the last couple of months through our own work, that reminded me of a level of closeness that I haven't felt probably since I'm two or three years old because I haven't allowed myself to. And, and a pain from that state was reignited because of a closeness that I'm not ex- now experiencing with my, with, with my wife. So there's a, it's, it's kind of paradoxical a little bit, right? Like this closeness now all of a sudden reminded me of a closeness I once felt where I was hurt and now I'm feeling hurt in this, in this space as well. And when, when I open up to these emotions, I need my wife, I need my husband. Suddenly, I needed my mother, I needed my father. Exactly. When the molester exactly. came, I needed my yeah, mother, what? I needed my father, I needed my father to punch him in the nose. My father didn't. He didn't know about it. Your father didn't know about it. You know, one of the. Patrick Carnes, who's the father of sex addiction, right? The first therapist who put his neck on his line, on the line to say sex addiction is a real thing. We can't, it's not only alcohol and drugs that we can be as, um, addicted to, we can be addicted to sex. And he's like, the reason there are 12 step programs, as far as I understand, is from this therapist, Patrick Carnes. And he said there's four beliefs every addict has across the board sex addict, alcoholic, everything else. I don't remember all four, but two of them I remember here was um, I cannot be, be loved as I am one of them. As I am, I will not be loved. So there's some jump that I need to make in order to get the love. And the second, which is so important, is I cannot rely on anyone to get my needs met. And every addict sits with this belief. And because of this belief, we go to things in order to get our needs met. But what I found is that there are levels to be loved. I don't deserve to be loved. And I can't rely on anybody for my real needs. 
The first one, I will not be loved as I am. Like, as I am, I am unlovable. I'm too shameful. I'm too disgusting to be right. loved. I'm I, I need to change myself in some way. I need to alter myself in yeah. some way in become, order to be... I have to become a people's pleaser. I have to become a genius. Correct. I have to become I have to, whatever it is. An athlete. I have to package myself up. Yeah, I have to package myself in some way I to be acceptable. As I am. Schwarzenegger or Albert Einstein or the Bakiva Eger or a Shmata. But that, that's, that second, the second one, I think... The second thing is, no, nobody will take care of my needs besides me. I can't rely on anyone else Excellent. to have my needs met. And that doesn't mean I could story, rely... Their whole life story right. is an is a execution of this, these two things, right? Right, right. And I think there's levels of this, right? There's which needs and when. And then as I've opened myself up more, and then in the relationship that, men, there's a, a closeness that now gets reopened that was never there. I've shut this part of my heart down, you know, at two years old, now all of a sudden it's open. Now that, now this need, I that belief gets reignited. I can't rely on anyone to meet this need. There's like endless, I think, levels to this, uh, to this point. But I would say, if someone is asking that question, if I may, can I? Inter- I just want to say one thing, and I can imagine, right, that as the, as your relationship, our relationships get closer, and suddenly you open yourself up. And your survival self, your reptilian brain, is experiencing a need that may not be fulfilled through your wife because maybe she's sharing a disappointment and a pain. It's like, I was, I could never rely on her for the need. And we really want to go back to where we were at eight years old and never rely on and run away and will never need you ever, ever again. That's all triggered. Correct. And, yes, and, and want to deny if she criticizes you, the part of me that knows that I'm undeserving of, of anything, right? And suddenly, oh, it's here again, here again, and she's the one who brought it out. Yeah. I'm going to run away. So, so imagine the, the compassion, the gentleness, and the awareness we need to be able to stay in the game and say, I'm 40 years old, I'm 30 years old, I'm 20 years old, I'm 50 years old, I'm safe, I'm safe. I could work this to do. I could talk to her or him about this. Wow, that's that's powerful. Thank you. There's, there's a therapist my wife and I went to. We did two all day experiences with her, and their experiences. It's not therapy. It's the closest thing I've ever experienced to a psychedelic journey before psychedelics was a therapy with this woman. She's also a Holocaust survivor. Her name is Heidi Schleifer. She's probably close to eighty. I'm not even sure if she's practicing um, anymore. And when we went to her, it was my wife and I together. And most of the work, she says, you face each other. I'm going to sit here as your guide, kind of work through things. And she says, this is her, her philosophy, is she believes that the person who is there to heal the other person is the spouse. We found the perfect person on the planet in order to help heal us. So as a therapist, she's stepping in the way of this relationship. She said, I'm not here for that. I see couples together so I can facilitate the healing that can happen between the two the two couples and for the entire experience like part of it you're the couple is facing each other the entire time and she's sitting on the side so physically representing this is the person it's not her as a therapist she's a guide to, to make, make sure, sure what, what she, she calls, calls it she's is, the she MDMA. Says, she's the mdma <laughs> <laughs> you know what she calls herself she says i am customs this is what she says i am customs i am here to make sure that your baggage doesn't cross over into their territory <laughs> That's all, but and then the healing can and and then the healing can happen. So it's so important. The Gemara says the Gemara says that forty days before we, our souls come down, right? Forty days after we're created, there's a voice in heaven that says, 
You know, this guy mm-hmm. and this girl is a perfect match. What, what does it really mean? <laughs> it really means something so profound. It means this soul is going to be going through this trauma. Her soul is going to be going through another trauma. <laughs> they will be able to help mm-hmm. each other heal that trauma. Yeah. And that's, you know where, what, um, that's where the marriage becomes amazing. On our last conversation... And last conversation, you shared or Benu Bachai, I think you said Parshas Kisisa, that every soul before Kisetse, sorry, every soul before it comes down to the world is given its choices. So I don't know if you remember then, but I, um, I was asking questions. I was kind of astounded by this idea. So let, let me tell you why now I was shocked then. Um, my first time I experienced mushrooms, an experience that I had on it was that I was no longer a person, I was an energy. An energy, a soul, a spirit, something, right? That was clear that I existed, but not as a, as a body. And in this, I was excitedly speaking to other energies, okay? And saying, hey, why don't we do this? You'll be my sister, you'll be my mother, you'll be my father, you'll be the... And we're all go- going through this thing. You'll be the first girl I like who breaks my heart. You'll be the first, you'll be the person who abuses me. And it wasn't even all the details. It was like this sense it was just this it was so healing after that experience it was like wow every single thing i've gone through and every single thing i will go through i chose and i chose it to go through with the person you had agency that's what it felt like and it was so healing and then i was like wow what a beautiful experience i had like okay good you know this is my experience and it was healing for me you know what's beautiful about psychedelics it speaks in the language like of that person like this is landed for me and very affected and, and affected me in just a beautiful, perfect way. And then I heard you say <laughs> that there's a, you know, Rabbeinu Mechaya, which basically says the same point. I was like, wow, this is what a beautiful, uh, what a beautiful experience. Yeah. I, I have yeah. to emphasize, you know, and it's just important to be sensitive because some people have been through such dark experiences in their life. This is not to minimize or rationalize or romanticize the horrible, horrible experience you may have endured. On the contrary, the point of Rabbeinu B'chayi is to say that at the end of the day, you're not just a victim of another moron's or another sick person's, you know, sick desires, even though that person affected you. But deep, deep down, nobody can snuff out the, the infinite light of your soul who was not sold into that situation, but was sent because something in your soul has the power to use it as a catalyst for unprecedented growth, not despite the pain, because of the pain. So not to minimize the sensitivity we all need to the horrible abuse that people go through and to stand up to criminals and not allow them to get away with murder. I just want to say, you know, don't... No, thank, thank you, you for saying, saying that. that. I appreciate it. Not that, you, not that you would be insensitive because you have your own story, but I, I just... It's important. No, but it could come across that way. Right. It could come across that way. And that's why it's, that's, that, that's some Listen, of what Abby, I was addressing. And I was saying it's a personal experience. I have another class now. I okay, good. Class. So I have okay. to take a break. I don't know. Do you want to continue another few minutes with questions? Or we could just continue. Let's, Let's ask one more question, question and we'll go to, uh, we'll we'll go go to that. that. I'm <laughs> saying you could continue taking questions. Okay. I'll ask one more question and then we'll, uh, you know what? Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Rabbi, we have, we have two more of these. March 1st, um, there'll be a second sign-up. Please register. We'll continue this conversation. We'll get into some more of the taboos. Rabbi Waiwai, thank you so much. It's an honor and a you, gift Rabbi, to be able to sit you. with you and have this conversation. Thank you for all your well. work that you're doing, not just with this webinar, but a lot of other work you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. And, and thank you, you as well. everybody.
for gracing us and for all your questions. And, and those, we, I know we didn't answer a lot of questions, but there's so much help out there. Today, there's a lot of help. There's people you can trust. Not everybody, but there's people you can trust. Reach out. You could reach out to Ellie Nash. You could reach out to myself. Please reach do. out to other people that you trust. Well, reach out to people who are experienced. <laughs> people <laughs> who know about this. It's very important. Because you want yes. people who, you know, can guide you in the right way. And there's so much guidance today. There's so many, right? There's so many things available today. There are a lot, a lot of tools. tools. And, and we'll get to that. We'll get to a lot of that in the uh... models. There's, there's people. There's, there's so many different, there's therapy models. There's, there's good books. There's good people. There's good groups. You know, there's But so that is where it starts. starts. It starts with speaking. And it starts with speaking with someone who you're virtually guaranteed a safe and compassionate safe response. And then from there we go. And, and safety. Thank you. We'll Beautiful. see you all. Thank you, Rabbi Weiwei. Next one. When is our next March 1st. March 1st. March 1st, two weeks, Wednesday night. Excellent. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Take care. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.